I'm here with film director Spike Lee. Spike, why did you decide to make your film School Days? Scott Sells, I'm glad you asked that question. I created School Days so I could create a dance. And do tell, what dance is that? What dance is it? The name of the dance is called The Butt. It's called The Butt. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast, and before we begin, a quick side note. Of course, visit nowplayingnetwork.net for the great supporting characters, Movie Madness, and another terrific interview from Jim Hankey over at Vinyl Emergency, talking with, uh, I believe, one of the pioneers behind Vinyl Me Please, Cameron Schaefer. There's a contest going on there, too, that you should check out, which is always a good incentive, and I plan to do the same here as well in the months to come. Um, I believe I will be announcing the winner of the um, Martin Scorsese DVD of choice, um, that I, a contest I initiated over on Facebook, um, on the next Scorsese episode. And just a heads up, for the month of June, there may be one episode to come, or there may be two. I haven't finalized a date with Nick DiGiulio, who was so great on the last episode, of course. But um, we're supposed to do a sequel episode sooner than later, and that could still happen this month. Otherwise, um, Bill Ackerman from Supporting Characters will be my next guest when we talk about Sam Peckinpah, which is the next official episode, I believe. Um, but like I said, it could be um, Nick DiGiulio's return, or that could come after the Sam Peckinpah episode. Which I can't wait for, since I've only seen The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs, which is crazy. Also, I need to give a shout-out real quick here to my other podcast, the spin-off show Pop Culture Club. Simply because I put out two um, rather entertaining episodes, I, I, would, I might say. One of which is an interview with Tony Presley of Real Life Tigers. And my friend Dan Solomon also returned recently to talk about our favorite records of 1996, going back 20 years, which is um, a yearly tradition. Uh, in fact, in July, Eric Childress and Colin Suter will return when we go back 30 years instead of 20, when we take a look at the our, our favorite movies of 1986. So I think this is just going to become a tradition, a bonus episode that I enjoy um, doing every year because I'm a sucker for nostalgia, and I think it's also interesting to go back and see what films hold up from a particular year. But I really encourage you to check out me and Dan's conversation about music from the 90s, and it was wonderful to see that the band that I chose for my number one slot for the record of the year retweeted the link to their followers uh, on Twitter, of course, so... That was really nice of them, so that <laughs> helped out the numbers, and a lot more people got to check out that episode. So thank you to the Afghan Wigs uh, for retweeting my link, um, in which I you know, procl- proclaimed, well, both of us proclaimed our love for uh, Black Love by the Afghan Wigs, which came out in 1996, of course. But as cool as that is, Dan Solomon did something remarkable, and it kind of began, I believe, in August of last year. In fact, he won an award for a piece that he wrote with um, Jessica Luther, I believe. 
And they wrote this piece about Baylor University and exposed a huge, huge story, which if you don't know anything about I'm going to link uh, to this article in the show notes. It's a Texas Monthly piece that Dan and Jessica researched extensively for. They like went through court documents, um, interviewed a number of people, and it's it's a total spotlight situation here. What they've what they've accomplished, and I I was so taken aback in the best way possible. I was so ecstatic learning about this accomplishment. Uh, that I couldn't sleep <laughs> one night. I was just like beyond thrilled because this article that Dan wrote along with Jessica made a huge impact on the university to where Chancellor Ken Starr, yes, that Ken, Ken Starr of the Bill Clinton uh, debacle, um, as, lo- as well as a football coach, I think, from Baylor, both of them were fired due to negligence and a number of other issues, I'm sure, because they 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 covered up this heinous, horrific act involving a football player committing rape, which the college sort of swept under the rug to protect their good name. And for more examples of this issue, I highly encourage you to not only read this article, but check out Kirby Dick's documentary, The Hunting Ground, if you haven't yet. So, I consider the director discussed in this episode to be a trailblazer who has made a huge impact on culture in his own right. So, I felt it appropriate to bring up Dan's incredible hard work here as a journalist and how it actually created change in in a significant way. And you're going to be hearing more about it either, you know, in your news feed or through Dan's Twitter it's just, it's something that needs a lot, mo- there's going to be a lot more things to address um, when it comes to looking at this whole story. So there's a lot regarding this issue and what has resulted um, due to hard work that, honestly, this intro cannot begin to elaborate on, so I don't want to go on too long. But I am just so beyond proud <laughs> of a friend that I've known since high school whose talent and intelligence and perseverance truly paid off. I really think you should follow Dan on Twitter, read all of his stories, whether they're pop culture-centric or politically driven. Him and Jessica are remarkable for what they've just done, or what they did, or the story they wrote last year, and what has resulted because of this expose. And good on them for bringing down Ken Starr once again. Okay, so I'll link to that article and I'll also link to the recent um, revelation and firing, just basically all about the changes that have taken place. Yeah, wow. That's something. That's something I can't shake in terms of how great um, it is. Speaking of remarkable people, we have Patrick Rapole. He's the guest. He's also the former co-host of this here podcast. Without him, Director's Club would not exist. And... I truly feel our discussion on Spike Lee that you're about to hear is very special. I had to hold back tears at one point. The sky grew very dark when Patrick was uh, keeping it real on his thoughts about America. We just had a blast revisiting the dynamic that made Director's Club what it was back in the day. So it's an honor to talk with him again, and he'll be back on in the future. 
He's got his own podcast, which you should stick around towards the very end. He talks about it briefly. To call him a friend um, is an understatement. He's he's more than that. He's like a brother to me. So let's do this. Let's wake up! As Patrick Rapole and I talk about the fantastic Spike Lee. Wake up! You've been had. You've been took. Guinea, garlic bread, pizza slinger, spaghetti binning, victim on Perry Como, Luciano Pavarotti, solo meal, non singer, motherfucker. Fuck you in this whole city and everyone in it. 
It was do the right thing. It was yes, and you, just you because I heard so much about it. Probably, I know. I think I it was because of pay per view. Okay, why. so it's like ninety or yeah, something like that. Yeah, saw the trailers all over pay per view. At that point, I was able to convince my dad that I could watch certain movies, and um, you know, even if it had an R rating, if like the trailer didn't show anything objectionable, <laughs> he'd be like, "All right, yeah, that's how I wound up seeing Cape Fear." My first Scorsese movie. <laughs> Big difference between my first Spike Lee experience. But, um, oh my God. Yeah, like, I mean, being at an age when I did not grasp all of its issues presented, but I mean, the thing, the thing that strikes me and it still resonates and something that I think about is the fact that, you know, I'm not out to, I'm not here to out my, um, my family as potentially being racist, <laughs> but. Living in Calumet City, Illinois, a black family had moved into the neighborhood, and three families that included our own sort of got together and decided that it was time to move on. But I know for a fact that it wasn't just because of that. My dad had mentioned that we could save a lot of money if we moved to Indiana. That is some suspect shit right there. I know. I know it is. I know it is. But no, don't get me wrong. But even at the time, my, my kid brain was like, why are why are my parents worried and why are they reacting like this? Your parents are racist, dude. It's, it's, every now and then, yeah, there'll there'll be something that comes up at a family event and I hear it and I'm like, hmm, that wasn't cool. And I certainly would never think that way or say anything like that. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, at the time, I mean, I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, it's a thought I've been having a lot. I mean, ha- thinking about race, watching all these Spike Lee movies. Like, oh, of course. Every white person, I, I shouldn't say every, because there are people, you know, there are people who are somehow unaffected by their environment. There are people on the spectrum or whatever. Yeah. Who, I, I genuinely believe there are probably people of all races who have no prejudices in them. But I believe that is a weird brain condition to have no prejudices. I think... All white people are raised in an environment in which they are racist, and being, quote-unquote, not racist is actually just an ongoing, lifelong process of questioning yourself and questioning thoughts you have and stuff like that. And you might not be a bigot. You may not be saying the N-word or whatever, but you have racist thoughts and you have racist assumptions and sure. you have prejudices. We're conditioned. You know, you're, yeah, you're misogynist. You're homophobic. Everyone is that. 
Yeah. So when I see when I'm calling your parents racist, I'm not saying they they had sheets in their closet. I mean, they probably had sheets in their closet, but <laughs> they didn't have so. holes in them. No. no. <laughs> Unless they wanted to be a ghost for Halloween. You know what? You know, <laughs> yeah, we go through the old photos of you. You're like, no, my parents are really racist. Oh my god. <laughs> They had to work hard to get that thing to point at the top. (laughs) They could just drape the sheet over my head. Yeah, but I mean, at the time, I was like, I didn't even get to really know these neighbors because it was the type of neighborhood where I knew most of my neighbors. Uh It was a time where you could hang out outside and not be scared, Mm -hmm. I guess. But, you know, it was was a weird time. It was a weird reaction that I noticed that, uh, you know, a lot of families in the neighborhood had shared. Um, And we, both of my grandparents had lived on the south side of Chicago, which at that point had transformed. Um, And, you know, I think it's a normal reaction for people to have in a questionable neighborhood to say, let's lock the doors. But even at the time as a kid, I was like, nobody's coming up to the car to bother us. Why? Right. But overprotective perhaps that's kind of how i rationalize it was watching do the right thing did that was that the beginning of you thinking critically about race yes yes okay absolutely so we have the same experience spike lee was the first instance i really had other than like i i had racist friends in texas who would say shitty things about the like the indian kid who lived on the street or whatever and i just remember i didn't speak up on his behalf or anything i didn't actually defend him i was a coward but like i still just remember thinking like I think they're just being assholes. I don't understand mm-hmm. why they're acting like that. So, yeah. but other than that, like, yeah, the first critical thought I ever had was uh, being—I don't know—probably uh, like fourteen or something and renting Bamboozled uh, from the library. Wow, Bamboozled was the first Spike Lee movie I ever saw, and that was just like. That's Professor Spike Lee. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pretty much. Tenured NYU Professor Spike Lee. I don't know if he was tenured at the time, but like uh, laying down a fucking lesson. And I. Indeed. And we had the portable DVD player because we would take these, you know, two day long, uh, 37 hour trips to New Jersey, car rides to New Jersey. So I didn't just watch that movie, I watched the commentary track on that movie. And it was just. Mm-hmm. Like, suddenly, everything I looked at... And, you know, you're 14, so you're already looking around and sort of being like, everything here is bullshit. And that's sort Pretty of much. directed... Yeah. <laughs> that directed by just, like, sort of nihilistic, everything sucks. Wow, I would have loved to have seen Bamboozle at 14. Yeah. I mean, I just heard, like, Nine Snails and Nirvana and all that stuff at the time. Yeah, like, yeah, you didn't, get to experience, you didn't get to experience anything cool when you were that age. Nah, not really. <laughs> no. But, like, Highland, Indiana was the whitest town you can imagine. I don't yeah. think there was not... A black kid in our school, mm-hmm. in our high school, at all. Um, I, I and that's just kind of like I, I wanted more of the melting pot experience, but uh-huh. I didn't really have it until I moved to Chicago. And you know, to 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 this day, it's just I'm still really affected by any type of prejudice. Yeah, and it's something that like I don't understand when people have this instinctual response to. Um, ostracize somebody or not get, you know, not try to understand somebody in Mm -hmm. some capacity. So, you know, I think, I think experiencing do the right thing at an impressionable age was, was like uh, earth shattering. But at a time when I wasn't having like emotional responses to movies, even, even watching something like that, it was more of just like an experience and I'm watching it and I didn't cry the way I do now after, you know, Radio Rahim dies. Mm -hmm. But, I still like I was I think it was I think it was like a shock. <laughs> it yeah. was a shock to the system to yeah. see something like that at that time. Um 
and just falling in love with Public Enemy too. I mean, like, oh right, yeah, that was something. For That's me. it. That that went hand in hand with uh, with experiencing Spike Lee is going uh, seeing Bamboozled, going back and discovering Public Enemy. You know, Public Enemy way beyond you know any race consciousness, any kind of social consciousness they raised in me. Like aesthetically, Public Enemy and their their production and their wall of sound. I mean, you, yeah. you've heard the music I made, like the sound collages and stuff I've done. Like, sure, everything goes back to hearing. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back for the first time. Yeah, and again, just that explosion mm-hmm. in your head yeah. as you're as you are open to a new way of things, the way that things can be. Yeah, Fear of a Black Planet was the first hip hop record I loved. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think Do the Right Thing is responsible for that transition and being, you know, more open towards different types of music as well. But holy cow, what a career this man has yeah, had. Yeah, he hasn't stopped. I know. He's, he, you know <laughs> he, he, he said in interviews, you know, he had to keep working because he knew there are so many direct, black directors, they make their first movie, and then it takes them forever to ever make a second. Mm-hmm. And he had a moment of stardom because... She's got to have it was such a flashpoint uh, where so many people were talking about it. There were so many essays being written about it. There's so many debates be- about it. It was this moment, and he and he is you know he is the most charismatic person in that movie. Yeah, he for sure. Is gra- and so he became a celebrity, and you know that's the writer director. Who's that? The funny guy. Awesome. So at the point, people were saying, "Oh, he's like the Black Woody Allen." Mm-hmm. So he was like, "All right, I got a hit on that." I got a, and then he made school days, and then he just hasn't stopped since. Yeah, I mean, he might have had like a year or two off occasionally, but not. I mean, he is not he until is, not until he was like firmly established yeah. as someone who could work consistently. No. Even then, like he's always made short documentaries mm-hmm. or music videos and stuff like that. Or you know, he's a professor at NYU. Yeah, he keeps busy. Yeah, he definitely keeps busy. But yeah, I mean, we'll start at the beginning here because. Um, I can't recall the first time I saw She's Gotta Have It, but it must have been when I worked at the video store and just really getting into film. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it's one of the first of the burgeoning American indie movement of the 1980s. You know, I think maybe, you know, something like Sex, Lies, and Videotype might have had a more of a mainstream crossover success in terms of, like, putting sun- something like Sundance on the map. Mm-hmm. But this was still, you know really a stepping stone but at the same time he was revered too at the, i mean just not just because he was telling you know the black black experience from i mean i think it's silly to say like nobody had ever done that before because right. you had like what um Mario Van Peebles' father. Melvin? Is it Melvin? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had the birth of, of, and black of black exploitation. Yeah, you yeah. had Sidney Poitier directing before that. You had Ozzie Davis directing before that. Right, right. You had... Um, you know, you had Oscar Micheaux directing in the in the early 20th century, and he directed a bunch of silent films. Oh, right, right, yeah. Um, so it's not like it had never been done, um, but it, yeah, it, it was something new. It felt something different. It is, and this is something that often when people talk about Spike Lee and his public perception, this is something that gets sort of unfairly overlooked, which is he he is, if not, he is as radical, if not more, in his aesthetics as he is in his politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she's got to have it. His, you know, I, I feel he's very influenced by, like, French New Wave films, you know, uh, Francois Truffaut. Yeah, um, and like, like Scorsese. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're, they both sort of came from that same place, and they have that energy to them. And, you know, especially in his later films, like, the way he shoots inserts is fucking amazing. And it's the same, if you watch, like, Jules and Jim or whatever, they'll put in stock footage uh because you know jules and jim takes place in like late 1800s i want to say 
and they'll put in stock footage from that time or from around that time. And it doesn't look, you know, it doesn't match at all. There's no, you don't feel that Francois Truffaut is trying to attempt to say this is happening in the mm-hmm. same world as this. It's just to evoke something. Yeah, and it's when you watch, fitting yeah. thematically or emotionally. Yeah. And when you put, you, you do, Spike Lee puts inserts into something, it feels separated from the, from the movie in a very, you know, sort of exciting way. Like it just feels like this punch to you, you know? Right. Where you, um, he ducks out of it, ducks out of the reality of the movie to, Hit you with a hit of reality before, you know, diving back in. And she's got to have it is a very, you know, uh, black and white, very sexy. People directly addressing the camera, you know, which is something I normally don't cards. like. It's something I normally don't like, but for some reason, Spike Lee does it well. Yeah, <laughs> in a way that fits and doesn't feel just like, oh, I'm breaking the fourth wall just to do it. It, it it feels like essential to the story, and you know, ha- it, and it allows us to get the char- allows us to get to know the characters in a very intimate way that I think serves Spike Lee in general. You know, I know like someone like Roger Ebert said, you know, Spike Lee isn't necessarily an angry filmmaker; he's just a really humanistic filmmaker. He's yeah. really um, considerate about his characters and just thinks about their plight and doesn't necessarily like. You know, I mean, I know his this, a lot of things he's angry about are throughout all of his films, but even in something like this, there is a you know Woody Allen meets Rashomon, you know, sort of aesthetic. But it's also an to get to the core of of um, you know feminist issues and polyamory, a lot of interesting themes that come up throughout this movie. I will attempt at least. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I don't think it's one hundred percent successful. I mean, he Lee himself has gone on record to say that he's if he could change anything, if he has one regret throughout his entire career, it's the rape scene in this film. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I think it's, I, it doesn't work. And I think it also seems very uncharacteristic of, of, of Nola to decide to go back to this guy after, you know, what is essentially abuse. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, she's a very, I, I mean, ultimately she embraces her independence and everything, but I didn't necessarily buy her choice to suddenly go well we had this rough patch and you did this horrible thing to me but i'm gonna still i'm still want to go back to you and try maybe a a quote-unquote normal relationship is that essentially yeah it's it's fucked (laughs) i think this this whole movie is kind of fucked up like i think number one this movie just hasn't aged well because the idea of like She's this woman who craves sex. Like you watch that movie, she has three boyfriends. That's not crazy. She's not she's not a sex addict. She's not like trolling bars. She's not getting into dangerous situations. She's a woman with three boyfriends. And maybe and again, like this is what how many years after? 30 years after or whatever. But like yeah. it, it it definitely has aged poorly because of that cuz now it's just like yeah, yeah. She's she's dating three people. That's that's normal. Like that's yeah. what people do. And then like the idea that she isn't a character at all, really. She is just a, a cipher. Construct? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I mean, yeah, she's a construct because she is, you know, she is only a tool to explore the way men look at her. And so that movie isn't about women. That movie's about men. Um, and unfortunately, it the movie doesn't quite realize that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite realize how blank she is. If that that, you know, you can make that very similar movie, but have her be completely blank and have all of these men projecting all of these things, what they want on her or what they view as her problem and stuff. But she doesn't really have any agency yeah. in that movie. The movie is supposedly about her, but it's not – everything about her is just defined by the way she 
you know, has sex with these men and gives pleasure to men and the way that she interacts with them. You know, you you already see she's estranged from her former roommate friend. She doesn't mm-hmm. have female friends. Her one female friend is this, like, weird predatory, predatory lesbian, lesbian character yeah. that's <laughs> gross and, like... Yeah, that's, that's something that rubbed me the wrong way, too. Yeah, it's... It's, um... You know, this is gonna this is gonna come up again and again. You know, Spike Lee shares a lot of things with Scorsese, and one of the things I think he shares with Scorsese is he's not good at writing women. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. More and or less. I think Spike Lee is a very old fashioned guy in a lot of ways, and I think I think he might be very progressive in terms of you know thinking about race in America or the black experience in America and racial issues. But I think he is very regressive in terms of. Um, Portraying women. Yeah, in terms yeah. of women and gender roles and what people's roles and relationships are. Like, I mean, we're going to talk about Crooklyn later. That's a movie I absolutely adore. That ending still is kind of fucked up to me. So, like, the, you know, She's Got to Have It is a movie I don't think has aged well. I think it's mostly fascinating as seeing, like, this is the genesis of Spike Lee. Yeah. more. Than, I mean... He, you know, he made much the like who's bed- that knocking at my door for Scorsese. Is that's how I felt? Yeah, yeah. He made the Joe's Joe's Barbershop, Joe's Bedside Barbershop. We cut heads. That was his like student thesis film that won him a Student Academy Award. Yeah. He, um, he, you know, he made a couple films before that, but yeah, this was sort of as, as just seeing like, oh, this is this is the raw Spike Lee, and also you get the feeling. It's and this happens a couple times in his career. You get the feeling that he thinks this is the last time he's going to be able to make a movie like this. Mm-hmm. So he just kind of shoves everything in there. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 the kitchen sink approach. Yeah, and I think also is that that also applies to school days to some degree. Yeah. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I, I I you know thinking about you know female characters in his films, like I really think Alfred Woodward, you know, in um in Crooklyn, she's a fully realized character. Um, you know, I'm Ruby D and do the right thing. I think she's you know really strong in that. I think Angela Bassett and Malcolm well, X. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, and do the and do uh, okay. So Ruby D and do the right thing. Not more so than any other character, but gen- definitely in general, do the right thing doesn't have fully fleshed out characters. And in general, the women are less interesting than the men. Joy only really exists as far as how she interacts with her brother and how and Sal and how Sal like Joy like she's like I'm you know she talks to bugging out she's like I'm yeah I'm down but I'm down for doing something Some positive as a community yeah. what is that we don't know because she's not really a character you know like Ruby D she the role that she has in the movie works in the in the mm-hmm context of the movie but it's not an interesting and with character. the dynamic she has with Ozzy Davis Angela yeah. I think I think the same as An- Angela Bassett in Malcolm X I think Malcolm X is kind of a perfect movie I don't think like Malcolm X would be better if there were more fully realized female <laughs> characters like that's not the story of Malcolm X anymore mm-hmm. you know Ma- Malcolm X was a, was a lot of things but he wasn't like a crusading feminist who had a lot of you know like the roles right. the women play in that film are the roles the women played in his life so I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with you, but uh, I'm not saying that they're all negative necessarily. Yeah. They're just they're just generally diminished or kind of yeah or uh, yeah I would agree with diminished. Say fuck up about I'm just say tr- fucked up things about them. I'm trying not to be dismissive of that, and you know like but at the same time, <laughs> there is like a tendency to focus on on the male experience throughout all of his films, and you know I, I even think of that scene in, in Malcolm X where you know a woman try. A, a white woman actually uh-huh. tries to engage with Malcolm and say, "What can I do to make a, a, a difference?" And he just goes, "Nothing." Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I think that scene 
particularly is about her being white, not her being a woman. Yeah, yeah, and, her no, being, and more to the point, her being naive. Mm-hmm. Now you could say like, well, why is the naive character who asks Malcolm X what they can do? Why does it have to be a woman? You know, like maybe you could draw that back to something. But like, yeah, yeah I mean, I think I think his debut th- is very loose, and you know, I, I I do like I do like his score. I like his dad's scores early on. I think they're yeah. I, they're loose and jazzy, and I kind of I think they complement the movie. I mean, even in something like Do the Right Thing, where the the music. I don't know. Did his dad do do the right thing? No, maybe not. Maybe it was somebody else. But you know, having like um, at, at one his instance, dad has played on a lot of his scores. If he didn't compose them, right? Like the ones that he didn't compose, he still plays on a lot based on plenty of them. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, some of the performances and she's got to have it are pretty inconsistent. Um, yeah, that's it. That's the other. I mean, it is a low budget film, so you get what you can get. But yeah. some of the actors are better than others. But you know, it inspired a guy like Kevin Smith to do Clerks. Yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, it was definitely like she's got to have it. Definitely slots into that '80s independent thing with. I mean, it's slacker 1990. I want to say, but like uh, para, yeah. um, Stranger Than Paradise. If you you know, it has a very similar that 16 millimeter black and white look, and mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's very hip. It's 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 not trying to be like anything that was going on in Hollywood at the time and that way it's it is also like slacker and stranger than paradise and uh film films like that um so yeah it definitely slots into that and it's inspirational you know in that way and also the thing that sort of defined at least the first half of Spike Lee's career is he was a celebrity he was not a filmmaker who made films that were famous mm-hmm. he was a celebrity filmmaker yeah. he had he was in Nike commercials with Michael Jordan. You know, he had a fucking 1-800 number. He had his own retail space in Brooklyn called Spike's Joint where he sold shit. Uh, oh, that wasn't just a clever In Living Color sketch? That's, that is a great – if you look up Spike's Joint in Living Color, no, that, that sketch is about the way that Spike Lee just turned Brand, himself into a marketing himself, machine. Yeah. yeah. And to be fair, that's what he had to fucking do. Like he is the most successful black filmmaker because he is the most successful – Film, one of the most successful filmmakers ever at marketing himself. That's yeah. ironically one of the things he shares with Tarantino is they're very similar in that way. Mm-hmm. So, like, because he played Mars Blockman in, um, I always say Mon, even though I think it's just Mars Blackman, uh, and uh, she's got to have it. And he is the funniest person in that movie. He is the most charismatic person in that movie. He has this deadpan sort of, <laughs> like, he, he does not sell anything. Um, and in certain roles, you'll see that really work for him. Uh, I think he's really funny in Jungle Fever as well, uh, for the same reason. But like, he became a celebrity. Mars Blackman became a famous black, you know, character that defined how he marketed his movies. That defined the fact that he put himself in his movies so they yeah. could get made. That that ended up defining so much of like the first half of his career that you could almost say the biggest legacy of She's Got to Have It is that fact. Because once he didn't need to anymore, you know, once he gets towards the end, he'll maybe do a cameo. Maybe he'll be a reporter in a scene or two. Yeah, that's about it. But then, once he didn't need to act anymore, he's not going to act anymore. He doesn't act for anyone else. He didn't think of himself as an actor. Um, But because he became this celebrity and, you know, hip and also he made money. So studios were like, well, this could be a cool – this could be a move for us to show that we're progressive. We we get the black filmmaker who makes money Mm -hmm. to make us money. (laughs) You know? And then, (laughs) boom, we're progressive now. You know? Like Universal Studios ran that for a while. Um, Like I think that is – I think that's the biggest legacy of She's Gotta Have It personally is just the celebrity of Spike Lee. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, his next film is interesting, of course, because Mm -hmm. it does – it almost – 
represents kind of like the mashup approach that he would sort of do with something like Chirac. But you know what I adore about nearly all of his films is that they feel alive and yeah. they're very humane. Yeah. And any con- conflict he portrays is done very unapologetically and brazenly. But School Days, I feel like the pacing is off. Like I, I was, yes. I was expect you know when I hear musical, of course, you know I have like expectations of high energy and big flashy musical numbers. There's one great one, obviously, that I think a lot of people would cite as one of the highlights of the film, um, and it's I think it's just interesting, especially in light of having seen um, John Singleton's Higher Learning first, which is really like almost like the. Um, not necessarily the lifetime movie channel version of what it's like to experience racism. More in generic, though. Yeah, generic. I would yeah. say generic is the right word. You got Michael Rappaport. Are there though, any white great. people in in this in School Days? I don't know. I don't think so. I, there's probably. I think there's probably a character or two who are biracial, but yeah. Oh, for sure. I don't think there are any actual. I, I love that about his first two films. Yeah. Is. That there are no white people in them, you know. Uh, you know, he he went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, and that is very much about his experience there. It's sure. a, it's not about experiencing racism from without; it's from experiencing racism from within. It's about mm-hmm. the things that prevent black people from, from being unified. The stupid things like well, the your dark, hair's like the this. dark skin your versus like this. light skin. Your dark skin, your light skin, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, we have different like you know. There's different rational points people have about what African Americans should be doing about apartheid, you know? Yeah. There, and I think, yeah, School Days, I honestly, he he makes musicals. <laughs> All of his fucking movies are musicals, kind of. Um, there's I can not see that. many movies in which mus- there isn't a dance number or there isn't a musical number or... Like, there's... And almost all of his, especially in the first half of his, like, career... It's almost all musicals. Mm-hmm. And I think School Days, the reason the pacing is so bad is because he thought to make a musical, you got to have a musical number. Right. Um, there's musical moments in School Days that are great. And those are the more, the chanting, there's the stepping scenes, there's mm-hmm. the, there's the, uh, the pledge, the fraternity pledges doing that. You know, they yeah. all, it had, they had, there's, there's, there's a rhythm to it. Yeah. There's yeah. like a music man kind of a rhythm to it where it's just sure. people talk singing to each other and repeating stuff. Now, those are all great sequences, but then when he stops the film dead for a whole song, you know, if you just cut out all the moments where he does that, you would have a really great movie. And that sounds like like a really crass kind of studio note to give, which is like mm-hmm. cut all the musical sequences out of his musical. <laughs> but like, I honestly think he, as he went on, he would better learn how to fit music into his films. Oh, for sure. But I mean, I I, I do like the the uh, Jigaboos versus the you do? Wannabes. yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not bad. No, I, I do like it. Yeah, um, and it's interesting that. Ernest Dickerson was hugely inspired by, you know, Pressburger and like a lot of early films, um, and including musicals. Well, I mean, there were films very students. colorful, very, very <laughs> yeah. colorful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know, they, they were, you know, they weren't, they weren't just uh, two kids who found a camera and said, "Let's make us a movie." They were, yeah. you know, they had they did a postgraduate, you know, film school exactly, and yeah. ha- and they had to work their asses off, and you know, they're film students, and he's a very literate filmmaker. Uh, he's 100%. very film literate. I mean, yeah. I'm sure he he's also literate literate. I'm sure he reads a lot too, but like you see other films being referenced in his movies all mm-hmm. the time. Um I love Lawrence Fishburne in this. Yeah. 
I mean, part of that is he is so fucking hot in this movie. <laughs> He's walking around his like fucking army jacket and his bullhorn and I that think, fucking I beard. I think Spike Lee is is a master of the sex scene. Like I even I like yeah. I like him and she's got to have it. I like the one in, in this. I mean, even do the right thing is just you know an ice cube, but still there's yeah. like, there's. Sensuality. He's really good at that. Yeah, and you know, it doesn't shoot sex in like an exploitive manner where we have to linger on body parts, but he really captures the intimacy. And, that, and that's revolutionary. That at, for the time, you don't have that sort of black sexuality on screen, right? Um, most black sexuality is like here's a fucking here's fucking Pam Greer. She is hot, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you or or you have. Uh, a black woman playing a hooker or you have uh, a black male being portrayed as like the sex god or something like that you don't have that kind of loving sexual relationship um yeah they're very and playful too like the i mean you, you talk later about the ice cube scene and do the right thing like that that movie that scene is not designed to arouse the audience it's designed to make you feel for those characters and yeah. feel their relationship because they just spent the past half of the movie arguing with each other the whole time mm-hmm. and that makes you understand like there is a connection there and that is I, I do love that scene, and in general, I kind of find sex scenes in movies tedious, and I, I don't, that doesn't necessarily not true of uh, a lot of his films, for, or a lot of his sex scenes for me, but personally, but I do think, yeah, he's he's more thoughtful about it. Right, and you know, like, he, he thinks about them in context, as opposed to, like, let's just throw in a sex scene, because that'll attract an audience, and that'll get right. them in the door, you know, like something in, you know, like Summer of Sam, that's, there's... Lots of sex throughout that movie. It's mm-hmm. about sexual tension, mm-hmm. um, but you know the when you feel a disconnect between uh, John Leguizamo and Mar- Mira Servino, their sex is really passive and cold, and you know that that happens in certain relationships, especially theirs. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think School Days is again much like she's got to have it. It it doesn't it doesn't hold up as strongly for me. I think it's good, but mm-hmm. not great. Uh, you know, it feels like a a blueprint for things to come, as opposed yeah. to you know something that I actively want to rewatch and revisit. But it certainly has its highlights. I mean, you know, the conversation that happens between Samuel Jackson and Dap's crew uh, inside and outside the uh, chicken joint. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's still very fitting uh, for today. And you know, um, just the, it's just really interesting to to experience just this like cultural amalgam going on between. <laughs> mm-hmm. The college scene and and just the culture at the time. There's a yeah. You say that's like a blueprint for later movies. I, I I definitely agree with that. I feel like the that dude uh, School Days is where Spike Lee discovered what it is he is actually very good at doing. And if you watch his films from School Days on, they almost all have this, which is he is good at getting a lot of flawed people together and watching them fight. He is a. I mean. Uh, and yet having a sense of community amongst them, too. Yeah, well, their their community is because they care about what is happening to each other. They don't just... Like, the reason no characters in any of these movies just say fuck it and walk away is because they are living next door to each other. They can't just say fuck it and walk away. They have to face each other. Yeah. Um, and, like... But... He he's an antagonistic person in a lot of ways. If you ever see if you ever see the uh, documentary, I think it's called Winning Time. Um, oh yeah, you told me about that. I didn't have a chance. It's but. a it's a documentary about the Pacers Knicks rivalry, and he plays a big part in it because him and Reggie Miller, you know, he's courtside at all the Knicks games, and him and Reggie Miller had courtside beef and were you know mocking each other and oh. and all that. Like 
Spike Lee's kind of an antagonistic person <laughs> in real life. I'm very passionate about his uh, basketball. Oh, sure. And uh, he's got a really good ear for the way people fight. Like, the dialogue is just very sharp. The way the things people say to each other and the way they fight and the way that they form their arguments, he has a great ear for it. And there is no one person who is right. Um, that That's why he can be so... He can be so broad and... Not necessarily even broad, but, like, blunt. Mm-hmm. He can be so blunt and so bold and just say what's on his mind because it's never prescriptive. It's always descriptive. He's never saying this is what must be done. This, he is always saying these are the problems, you know, and, uh, and these are different ways people have of thinking the problem should be dealt with. And here are these people clashing and it doesn't matter what movie it is. You always have those people all fighting and then he has a great ear for that. So I think that movie, and also he's very funny. Oh, He's yeah. a very funny writer. Mm-hmm. I think School D is a very funny movie. I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> you might learn, you might, you might realize as as you go on into this podcast that I'm kind of an apologist <laughs> for Spike Lee. So I kind of love everything he does a little bit, um, not everything, but most things. But um, but yeah, I think he is a very funny filmmaker, and I think School Days just as a comedy is very enjoyable, and it's a I, I like I enjoy just putting it on and, and watching it. Even though it certainly is not as great as the heights he can hit, uh, yeah, I, I like School Days a lot, and I think that's what I mean. We're going to get to it obviously late, but I think that's kind of what rubbed me the wrong way about Chirac is mm-hmm. maybe I, I wanted that do the right thing height again, especially you know in light of my own personal experience of living in Chicago, and I I didn't get that sensation. It was more of like. Let's be satirical. Let's integrate this Greek tragedy. You know, we'll get to that later. But I'm just I, when you brought that up in terms of his heights, I, I wanted that from Chirac and I didn't get it, and that kind of bummed me out. But what can you say about his next film? Do the right thing. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watch it every time. I'm just like every time I watch it, I'm just kind of like, this is ex- this is what I want movies to be. I alive. I would be baffled <laughs> if anyone. A the other great thing about do the right thing is all all of its qualities are so evident. <laughs> Everything's I know. right there on screen. From you the don't open credits on. No one, no one. Yeah, exactly. From the very uh, first fucking moment where the jazz music uh, fades out and the the fucking record scratches fade, come in, like no one who watches do the right thing is like, why do people like this movie? Like you know, <laughs> it's it's fucking incredible. It is absolutely radical aesthetically. There is no. There's never been a movie before it. There's never been a movie after it. There's no movie that feels like do the right thing. No one has bothered to attempt to do like if, yeah. like everything about do the right thing was what was it was it morally acceptable for them to riot at the end? Should Mookie have thrown the trash can? And it's like the actual thing people should have been shitting themselves over is like what the hell how where did this come from? How does a person have so much confidence and so much vision? At the age of, I want to, you know, he's probably in his, like, mid-twenties. To yeah. make a movie, like, do the right thing, it's, you have, like, it is, the, it's just absolutely fearless filmmaking. Fearless and incredibly empathic. Yes. That's the one thing that really strikes me, especially now that I'm more attuned to that, is just, he avoids demonizing anybody. Yeah, I mean, I always had, when I, when I was, when I first saw this movie, you know, I had already seen a couple of Spike Lee movies, I had this knee-jerk sort of reaction where I was just like, oh yeah, Sal Sal and all those people at the pizzeria, they're all fucked. Fuck them. Like yeah. 
fucking fuck John Turturro. Yeah, like fuck. I mean, obviously, well, John Turturro is the bigot in the yeah, movie. Yeah, but like, I, I was, I just looked at Sal and I was like, yeah, that's right. Open a fucking pizza place in Brooklyn. You think you own these people? Like, I, I was just, I remember, I was just like putting all my fucking white guilt on him. Yeah. <laughs> but you, but that, that Cadillac pulls up. He gets out. Like, those are the first white characters in Spike Lee's career, and they're so empathetic, and yeah. he cares so much about them. Uh, you know, like. He makes you identify with them, and he didn't have to. Uh, there's later movies on where he doesn't put in that legwork, and they don't. It doesn't work as well. But like, you care about them so much, you you relate to them the way they fight with each other, and that Danny Aiello has this little smirk when he when uh, it's like uh, uh, what is it? John Turturro's like it's like a disease this place, and, and yeah. Danny Aiello just. <laughs> Like gets a kick out of that phrase, and is like, "It's like a disease. This place, John right. Turturro, like has so to keep cold. Him, he has to stop himself from ca- cracking up as he's like, I don't think I said that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure, like Spike Lee and Danny Aiello had like a conversation during the rehearsal process about whether Sal is a racist or not. And, yeah, like, they couldn't agree necessarily. Like D- Danny Aiello wanted to pr- portray him as somebody that's more. Um, conflicted and kind of just he he's, he doesn't want to hate, but it's like so instilled into him that he does in certain instances. Yeah, I mean, I, again, like I think every I think what Spike Lee did was make Sal a great Sal's a Sal's a great character. You really feel for Sal. There are moments in that movie where you are like, my God, this man's living his dream. This man is has a pizzeria that people love, and he's doing what he loves. And, like, there are moments in that movie where you feel his achieved dream and you feel so good for him. And, you know, obviously that's in contrast to everyone else in the neighborhood, and Mm -hmm. that's very pointed. But, like, Sal's a great character because you don't have to be John Turturro to be racist. You don't have to be John Turturro's character. You don't have to be Pino. (laughs) John Turturro's not racist. But you don't have to be a bigot. You don't have to side-eye every black face you see to be a to be racist there are, and if you don't accept that if you think that that isn't true then you are denying something that could be bubbling right under the surface and all it takes is the hottest day of the year to bring that out of you it's not even it's not even racist it's almost just like ignorance like he like, well all racism it, yeah. is ignorance well that's true but i mean like spike lee just exposes like the under unsuspecting racist yeah well you know, again and the average person and somebody who's just a hard worker who maybe is having a shitty day it's too hot out and just externalizes all his frustration in the worst way. Yeah. I there I mean there's other stuff in there. It's I don't think the only racist thing Sal does is is destroy the radio. I think I think there's other stuff in there. I think the way he wants to be seen by these people in this neighborhood is he wants to be this like benevolent person who has reached down to people who don't live in his in his in a as nice neighborhood as him and have provided them something that like I yeah. think there is something condescending in Sal. And not just not just hate, but like there is a certain condescension. There is a certain belief that he is up here because he is running a business mm-hmm. in their neighborhood. But he's looking at himself as like a savior for exactly. the community. And you know, and to and to a certain extent like that's that's a natural feeling. I think when he describes seeing kids grow old and like realizing that they've grown up on his food and being proud of that, like that's a real honest thing that he should feel, but he should also be honest about himself with who he is and what he's doing in that neighborhood Mm -hmm. and how he's interacting with these people. And, you know, and that doesn't mean everyone who opposes Sal is right, you know, bugging out, 
Fucking out has a point. Why the fuck is there only Italian people on the wall? None of your fucking money comes from Italian, um, American Italians. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, Sal is right. <laughs> Spike, Spike Lee said in an interview, Bugging Out has a point, but Sal has a better point. Yeah, my fucking pizza shop. Exactly. exactly. Do what you want. Exactly. Like, do what you want in your own pizzeria. I'm going to do what I want in mine. And and there's this hint of sadness to Sal when he sees his son acting out yeah. the way he does. Like yeah. that, that whole one take, one shot of you know the camera slowly uh, dollying in on them it's, on the window. Yeah, that whole sequence just really. Like, and you just see him like you know put his head, you know, his hand in his head and just look down and look sad about what's going on outside and. You know how his son is a complete racist. You know it's just like maybe he's just—it's not necessarily self-loathing. He feels the fact that you know racism exists in him, and even more so in his son. But he's just sad that that happens, that it gets to that point. Yeah. You know, and like the genesis of this was simply like I want to make a movie because Spike Lee had read that you know like after ninety-five degrees the murder rate goes up. You know, uh-huh. and then, well, I mean, there's a lot of real life. You know, there's oh, the sure, Howard, yeah. there's the Howard Shore murder of of the of the black male who went to a Howard Shore pizzeria and got started getting harassed by the yeah, Italians yeah. who were there, and then he eventually was killed. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's you know real police brutality. There's a you know there there's other he he put a whole lot into this movie, and this is the only movie I think where because that's approach he takes sometime where he just sort of dumps all the things that are on his mind into mm-hmm. a stew and turns it into a chili. Like, I oh, think yeah. that's the only time that everything just came together perfectly. Every ingredient is there. Yeah. And, you know, I, mean, I, I think he, there's a huge gray area to it, too. I mean, like, I think I think it confused me at first when um, uh, Ruby Dee's character screams, burn it down at one point, and then later on she's screaming, no, over and over again at the top of her yeah. lungs. Like, where do you stand? But, you know, I think that's maybe a lot of people's instinct is like yeah this whole situation is fucked up let's get angry and aggressive and you know act out this way but then when we see the ramifications of that and the fact that you think about it you process it and the fact that sal has lost his livelihood his business you want to scream out oh no we shouldn't have resorted to this like maybe the first instinct is to react that way but then you process it and think this was the worst thing you could do but at the same time they are reacting. The, the, there is only one thing they can do. They can kill Sal. They can beat the shit out of Sal and the other guys, or they can beat up his pizzeria. The cops are gone. The cops that killed Radio Rahim have they've hauled yeah. ass. They know that they fucked up, and they are they've just like exited the situation. And yeah. they the cops uh, in that way they also failed Sal because the cops are not protecting. That's true. Him. <laughs> I didn't think citizen. of that. Yeah. They just left Sal and his brothers in a fucked situation. <laughs> like they, you have like that anger. To ask a people to not to not express such a intense anger at to seeing like the person that everyone in the neighborhood fucking idolized and loved like kill the idea that like the idea that you know did he did they accomplish anything by burning down Sal's pizza no is that did that help anything no no you know uh, did most. But most it seems riots, very normal and a very human. You know, instinct. most riots people don't loot the fucking police station. They loot, mm-hmm. you know, they they loot their own neighborhoods, and it doesn't help the situation. But at the same time, those riots are not; those riots don't exist on their own. Those riots are just a symptom of something else, and it's this anger frustration. That yeah, you know, and also like Sal, like Mookie's fucking right. Like Sal has insurance. Like there's a lot that Sal lost, and you really feel for Sal. But Sal did not lose a life. Sal did not. Right, right, Sal did right. not. He lost his place of business that he will get insurance for, and he can 
pay to have it rebuilt if he wants to, or he can pay to have it rebuilt anywhere else. Yeah. Probably is, or probably somewhere else. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> but, like... But, yeah, no, I've always just... It's one of those things Sal where... Sal did not lose as much as that community lost. Yeah. I mean, I always felt like it was justified in his in, in Mookie's reaction, yeah. and a lot of people go, no, I don't know if he did the right thing. But I, I just think back to, to, you know, to history, even when Martin Luther King was assassinated... What did all the, you know? A lot of black people do. They rioted. Yeah, you know that was just like their their reaction. They had to what get you, out what this else anger. Can you do? Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, I yeah. I'm not saying Mookie did the right thing. I'm saying that I, if you if you if you believe that people only act if people only do the right thing or shouldn't do it. Not um, I'm trying try to find the right words for this because it's obviously I like know it's hard a tricky situation. <laughs> but like, Mookie didn't necessarily do the right thing. I think I think the I think Demer did the right thing. I think I think Demer yeah realized that at the at when you know when tomorrow came, no one would feel good about what had happened. But Demer just couldn't stop it. You know, you can't stop it. But like, I don't think I also yeah I think. I think Mookie did the right thing as far as he directed his anger at the pizza place. He didn't. Right. <laughs> did, he didn't direct did he, it at Sal. Yeah. He didn't take that trash can and beat Sal to death. He didn't. Yeah. They didn't. They, they didn't get home and get go home and get a bunch of carving knives and and chop up Sal <laughs> and, the, and his sons. Like. Right. Like. I mean, but seeing it they, through the eyes of Sal, that's a they destroyed huge a building loss. and that and that had ramifications because the fire spread and, and like, he built it with his own hands and everything. You wow. know, but. I'm sure he's exaggerating too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, again, Sal did not lose as much yeah. as what that community lost. I gotta say, Ozzy Davis MVP. He's so good in this too. Ozzy Davis is the most lovable person right? who's ever walked the earth. And that whole monologue he has about you know, have you ever seen your starving children and there's nothing you can mm-hmm. do about it? That was all him. That mm-hmm. was all him. And yeah, like I just I love his dynamic with Ruby D in this, and I mean everything about this movie is just incredible. But also, this movie captures a lot of joy. Yeah, I fucking I fucking love the you know the, there's the the kids knocking out the fire hydrant and playing the and the and the guy picking up his girlfriend and throwing her in the water and stuff like that. Sure, and you have that you have the very loving you know ice cube scene between Tina and Mookie, and they don't have the greatest relationship in the world, but mm-hmm. there's at there's at least some love there. You see, you know the the relationship between Ruby D, you know mother sister and and Demare is really moving, and the way that she, you know, grows to understand that. The first, you know, she looked at him and she saw a bum, the way everyone else saw, saw a bum, and she saw something that's emblematic of all the problems of, of, of you know, black males and stuff, and she she just sees in him, he, he is just like this representative of this cancer, and she just hates him, and she doesn't see the human being underneath it, and then she sees the human being underneath it when he saves the kid, I th- you know, I think the... Billy Bats <laughs> driving up in his fucking yeah. car. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, no, it is, a, it is a joyful film. Yeah. I also like how characters are sort of, they define themselves, not every single one, but by music, especially like certain factions. You know, you, you have uh, just like the Italians sort of looking to Frank Sinatra or something, but you have obviously Radio Raheem and just like that, that boom box is a symbol. The music that comes out of it is a symbol. Mm-hmm. And, and the Latinos in their salsa. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. I, that's a great musical moment where the mm-hmm. two songs are mixing together. That's right. yeah, that's like, that's like the, the music I made for the game. <laughs> yeah. I, that, 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 that works so well. And like, even things like, 
just the, to- the the choice of uh, you for know. listeners at home. I made I, I did music for a computer game in which layers overlap on each other depending on how you're doing. So that's yeah. anyway. I'll just explain that comment. Go ahead. But Dutch angles, <laughs> Dutch angles here are Dutch, used beautifully. Dutch angles throughout this whole and movie, tracking shots and things moving from POV bat like the love yeah, and the, the love and the hate night of the hunters uh, yep. sort of speech where it. It starts off as a two-shot, and then the camera moves into Mookie's perspective and then moves out of Mookie's perspective. Like, this... If you, you just watch the scene at the end, the final confrontation between Radio Rahim and Sal. Like, what American Hollywood movies look like this ever? There's, like... It is, it is totally off-the-walls, like, original filmmaking. It is such the product of a strong vision. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's incredible. It's an incredible film, and it's, you know, the reason it's so watchable, the reason you watch it over and over again, you know, it, it makes you cry at the end, but you also, you know, that opening, you know, that opening credit sequence is like that, it's also about that energy. Yeah. It's also, you I know. I look forward it, to hang out also, with these characters. Yes. There's, you love these people, you know, yeah. even, even the shitty, even the shitty, like, group, the fucking uh, Greek chorus kids with Martin Lawrence who are all just instigating trouble. Yeah. <laughs> And I even just love... You might as well throw them shits out! They broke! <laughs> <laughs> that, whole, that whole stuff. Yeah. Um, and, Martin, yeah. Then one guy turns to Martin Lawrence and says, why don't you fan me with your ears? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, every, even all the side characters are vivid throughout this whole yeah. movie. And, uh, you know, I even... Even in the... Even in the uh, um, gentrification sequence with the guy in the fucking Larry Bird shirt, like... You feel for that guy, too. Like, it is a free country, you know? Like, yeah. should he not, like, you know, it actually, you know, it doesn't answer the questions. It, you know, that there's two conflicting, you know, quotes at the end. It doesn't answer any questions. It raises the questions beautifully. Mm-hmm. 100% agree. Yeah. Now, Mo Better Blues. Mo Better Blues I, is I a bit a more of a mess. To, yeah, I didn't get a chance to rewatch this, but I do remember feeling that way about it. But, I, I mean, it, again, it's vibrant. It's got great costumes and, God, the suits. and the it's, just, it's, just wall, it's just wall-to-wall great music. Yeah. And it's got great Denzel, performances. Denzel and Wesley Snipes are great together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the sort of thing where I, you watch Mo Better Blues and you watch Jungle Fever, and you're like, God, there was another road Wesley Snipes could have gone down. That's like, true. He became action guy. And, and Blade. That's yeah, about he, it. yeah. He became action guy. He became Blade, and that was sort of his, you know, career. And eventually, he just started doing B action movies that were direct to video and stuff. Yeah. But like that guy is charming as hell. That guy's really funny. Oh yeah. You I, get all the scenes backstage in Mo Better Blues where the band is talking and stuff. Like that movie's just a hangout movie. Right. And again, it's it's got a lot of great stuff. You got the you got the scene where the where Spike Lee is as the gambling addicted agent or the gambling addicted manager, I should say, is trying to get into the club, and Charlie Murphy is just <laughs> f- fucking f- fucking uh, trashing him the whole time, and then the other guy, and then you get the other guy who's the I'm gonna get the I'm gonna get the number one, but wrong, but the nine percent or the Islam, the uh, the Muslim guy who who's also in the bouncer who he's trying to be like we shouldn't be fighting each other, but then the, they both turn on him because yeah. like, man. Fuck that shit. <laughs> isn't Robin Harris in this too? Robin Harris is the comedian in this. Robin Harris is. God, is he so funny? He's I need to great see some to do of the right stand too. Yeah, there's a good documentary about Robin Harris oh, that really? came out after he died. Okay. Um, I should see that. Or maybe really it came out like guy. 10 years after he died or whatever. But uh, Robin Harris Robin Harris was great. Robin Harris. Because I just a, I knew him from House Party. That's the first thing I saw. Yeah, him yeah. I mean, yeah, he was like a Chitlin Circuit sort of comedian for a long time. But, yeah. Um, no, he's so funny. You, and then you thing. go on and you watch uh, Kings of Comedy. You see a lot of Robin Harris and Bernie Mac. Uh, oh, yeah. Bernie Mac stand up. But um, Mo Better Blues, 
It's got Denzel in it, and Denzel Washington is my favorite movie star. He's not my favorite actor, but he is my favorite. As far as, like, you want a handsome, charismatic person to be in your movie, uh, it doesn't matter how shitty the movie is. I love watching Denzel. He saved Flight, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like, I... I mean, uh, Flight feels... Uh, that's that's less of a movie star turn and more of, like, an actor. Like, yeah. That's more of a performance. But, like, you know, and he's a great actor. You know, him and Malcolm X is one of the great performances. But, like... You also you just want to watch a, a Tony Scott movie about a train? Like it better have mm-hmm. Denzel in it. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't right? give a fuck. <laughs> so Denzel's in it, and that's good. But it's kind of a mess. It doesn't know where it's going. It it tries to be about like the balance of art and love. It almost, in a way, is this re- flip of she's got to have it, where he's you know juggling these different women. Uh, he has to decide okay. who, yeah. what he wants to do and who he's serious with. It's it's a mess. Mm-hmm. It's uh it doesn't it doesn't work so well. But uh you know. He writes uh, Spike Lee writes quickly. He's a lot like Woody Allen in that way, um, and his movies kind of sometimes have that sloppy Woody Allen kind of feel, where maybe there weren't enough drafts, or maybe there wasn't an actual like nugget of an idea. He it, maybe he just sat down and wrote it, and that's right. what Mo Better Blues feels like. Yeah, and I, I, maybe to some degree too. After something like Do the Right Thing, there weren't a lot of people saying no to him. Like oh, maybe you should trim this, or maybe you should change that. And I think like, well, after yeah, I mean after his movies made so much money. Uh, and they didn't cost much to make. Uh, he, uh, you know, you want to be in that business. You want to be in the guaranteed profit. Oh, business. sure. You want to be in the court, the black audience business. So, like Universal was just letting him make. You know, he had the kind of freedom in the Hollywood system that no filmmakers had in the Hollywood system. Yeah. Um, other than filmmakers who already wanted to make that sort of like Spielberg could do whatever he wanted, but what he wanted to do <laughs> was make Raiders. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I have this weird memory of. Because I I don't think I I don't think I saw Jungle Fever early on, but I have this memory of you of you me and Carly sitting in your basement and you just show the ending on YouTube yeah and we're all laughing and like I can't believe that's how that movie ends and so I'm rewatching yeah. it now I was like did that re- did that really happen that really the <laughs> was ending that of a this movie scene? yeah that's what it seems like it just seems like a like a parody all of a sudden or something. It just, it's its so ridiculous. And I, I don't think the central relationship here that develops is all that strong, as, as charismatic no. as Wesley Snipes is. It's, he picked the wrong subplot. There, there's there's yeah. two plots in this movie, and one is compelling, and that's about and that's about uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Jackson as, and his family, as and Gator, his as the drug addict. Yeah. And about, God, the fucking heartbreaking, Ruby Dee's heartbreaking performance uh, you know, Ozzy Davis is this disgraced minister. You don't know exactly what happened, but he, he, you know, it might it might have just been that he was too stubborn and hard headed for his own uh, parish, mm-hmm. and he was just they he just lost his congregation, and and you have that relationship between those three, and this sort of mix of shame and love and desperation, and that is just like the, to me the movie ends when when Ozzy Davis shoots Gator. Like to me, that's the end of the movie. Because <laughs> that's, 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 a good that's way why to I'm it. watching the movie, you know. Yeah, no, that's 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 a really good point. And I then, just turn it off right at that point. And then <laughs> and then you know, I like Wesley Snipes in this movie a lot. I think he's very charming. I think he's a good character. I think I think there is an interesting thing to be said about the fact that you know he's he's the only black architect working in this firm and. You know, and he's oh god, he Tim to, Robbins though. Oh Tim, Tim Robbins, is, yeah. There's there the some of the some of the worst white guys in Spike Lee's career is Tim Robbins and Brad Dourif. And yeah, it's, it's like oh my god, uh, that so sounds I, suspiciously like reverse racism. Like yeah, I know. 
It's uh, again like some, I find myself always, laughing at elements like that when I shouldn't be. He probably. doesn't always do his due diligence. Jungle Fever, he definitely doesn't because it's not just them. The Italians are just fucking like it's just stereotypes. Yeah, they're just uh, it's just a, a fucking uh, WAP parody. They're just like, whoa, what about it? Whoa, what do you mean? Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like it's the. Like the thing that people, when people go, forget about it, and they do the weird yeah. hand motion, and you're like, I don't know where you're getting that from. Like that is just that that weird throwaway joke as a as seventeen characters in a candy shop. I find shop. it funny. That's one of the reasons. Why, I'm not, not only was I sick of mafia stuff, but that's one of the reasons why I never watched The Sopranos. Is I just figured that's like that's all that show is. <laughs> yeah, forget no. about it. Sopr- I killed that guy. Oh! Forget about it. Oh! I mean, to an extent. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe. You got Michael Imperioli in this, and also, like, to an extent, like, um, it's just Sopranos. Ha- I mean, it comes from a place of truth, you know. Uh, oh, sure, uh, sure. But it's just, it's just not observed. It's not well observed the way yeah. his other characters. But I do are well think observed. the search for Samuel Jackson's character set to that Stevie Wonder song is great. In I love the, that in the in the crack den. Yeah, I love that whole sequence. Yeah, he's just walking around the neighborhood, then he gets to the crack den and. Oh man, I don't know. There's just again that spikely immediacy, that rhythm, that sense of confidence. Mm-hmm. I think it's all just there. Hell on earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's one of my favorite Stevie Wonder songs. On top of that, you know, but. I almost feel like it's it's a shame because he never did track tackle drugs directly. Spike Lee. He never did make his. I mean, and not necessarily tackling something directly is the best way to go about it. But like he, there it, this if this and Clockers, I guess, are his movies about the drug problem in yeah. America, and they're not. And, and especially focused on crack because that was an epidemic at the time yeah. in, in those neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean that was yeah, man, that was an epidemic all through the eighties as well. That's yeah. that was that's an ongoing epidemic. Um, now we have the no, no, <laughs> we, we have a different uh, we have a different epidemic that's going through middle class white you know white families, and that's a that's a, and that's a different kind of epidemic because the fucking pharmaceutical companies are making money off of that, not the CIA. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Let's get politi- political club. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, it's a like. It's a shame that movie isn't just about Gator. It's a shame that movie, yeah. and it's a shame that Clockers isn't really just about what it is like to be in. You know, I like Clockers a lot, but like, it's a shame he never did. I do, that. but then I hear about the book, and I'm like, oh man, I feel like he he kind of blew the adaptation. I, but I still like the final he product. He didn't blow it. It's just you know, uh, some you know some. Some things just work better as a novel because a novel you have constant running internal commentary, and if you have a movie where there's just wall to wall voiceover, you might as well not have a fucking movie. Yeah, uh, you know, or unless it's just like I'm going to do the most dazzling camera things ever, and you won't mind that there that you don't get to actually watch any scenes between actors, and, and then you have casino. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, but, um, I don't know why. Like the, some of the didactic did, that's the word, you know. Yeah. Didacticism. <laughs> yeah, didacticism. I can't say it for some reason. But anyway, like that, for some reason, in some Spike Lee movies, doesn't bother me. But here you have, you know, Ozzie Davis, like practically deliver to the camera and like an address on the history of slavery and. And um, you know the, the the rape of female slaves mm-hmm. by white masters mm-hmm. and all these things, it rubs me the wrong way in in this story as opposed to like something that's you know poignantly about racism. Like do the right thing. If people are looking at the camera and saying all these racist terms, that works. Here it just feels like a history lesson. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't feel genuine or at least complimentary to the story, to the love story. I know that's Ozzie Davis's character as a staunch mm-hmm. father figure, but it's, 
it doesn't. It, it just rubs me the wrong way in this film. I, I, I disagree about it because he's not delivering it to the camera. He's delivering it to Wesley yeah, Snipes yeah, and Annabella Scarrera, yeah. who are both like desperately embarrassed. Yeah. About it, and you know, I the reason it, when Spike Lee gets didactic, the reason it never bothers me is it it never becomes the thing, or it rarely becomes the thing, I should say. Um, and even when it sometimes it does become become this, it's not a problem. We'll, we'll talk about bamboozled later. Um, mm-hmm. but like, it never feel it rarely feels like the thing where the thing that is coming out of Spike out of the character's mouth is actually just Spike Lee's thoughts, and that is because that character is Spike Lee's stand-in, and he's going to say what Spike Lee thinks to the audience, and that's the way the audience will learn. Yeah, um, it's not a case of Kevin Smith where every character talks the same or something. You know, uh, he you know he's talking about quadroons and octoroons like. He's, his own granddaughter is, yeah. a, is a is a quadroon. Like there's, you know, his own granddaughter is, is a is a quarter is a quarter white. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, he is not necessarily Ozzy Davis is not in the right in this movie. No, he shoots his son. That is not a that is not a loving act. You know that is, that is the act of a, of a father who has absolutely turned his back and shut the door on his mm-hmm. son. And, and I, I guess it's just to showcase showcase his hypocrisy and closed mindedness to some degree. Yeah, like or it's just to. Ex- Explore like why they're both estranged, why this relationship yeah. has no future. The real problem with that movie is it doesn't tackle interracial problems because the real interracial problems come from the same way a lot where most racial problems come from, which is self hatred. And you know, it never actually can get into the actual problems that they would have as a white woman and a black man, mm-hmm. the differences from where they come from and stuff, because it's you don't see their relationship at all. No, you don't. You see one scene where they're walking through the Chinese, you know, where they're walking through Chinatown, you see one scene when they have dinner together, and you have one scene where they're sitting together in their apartment, and then you have, you have, like, the little playful boxing thing where they're fighting. But you don't actually know who they are to each other. You don't actually yeah. know why. You don't get invested. No, you don't. Um, and, because all of the problems about their relationship come from external forces who are all reacting in the most, uh, abs- like, not absurd because it's it happens, but they're all reacting in the most extreme way possible. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, I know Annabella Sciorra um, argued with Spike Lee too because she felt that I want to portray a genuine attraction to this man, but he was like, "No, it's all about curiosity. It's all about what is it like to sleep with a black man." And she felt really uncomfortable with that, but that was kind of like his direction to her was that this whole relationship develops out of curiosity rather than genuine passion. And that's that seems to that's not and that's not the script he wrote. There's nothing there there isn't really a moment in that movie where you see that. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt too. I mean, I guess he like in his mind that is the only reason why a white woman would want to sleep with a black man and therefore it doesn't need to be shown, but like I, you know, I disagree with Spike Lee. Spike Lee has a pretty hard, ta- pretty hard stance about against interracial dating. I definitely disagree with him. I mean, I don't know if he still feels that way, or if he, or if he has lightened his approach to just be. I think there are a lot of problems that need to be addressed with it. But like Spike, if you're listening, yeah. send me an email to directorsclubpodcast no, no at gmail to let me know. I'd, yeah, I was watching all these movies, just be like, God, I'd love to fucking ask Spike Lee a hundred questions about all these movies. Um, but yeah, I think the problem with Jungle Fever is the actual relationship between them isn't interesting. No. And it doesn't actually have anything to do with the character of Gator. Uh, you want to talk about the didactic conversations? I do enjoy like the conversation of all the women getting together and talking about their problems, and they're all sort of disagreeing about what they're supposed to do about yeah. it. Yeah. S- same with uh, Chirac. I like that. Mm-hmm. Is it Chirac or Chirac? Or, Chirac. Or, okay. 
Shy Town. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've heard that argument on another podcast, and it's like, I don't know. How do you pronounce it exactly? I've always heard it Shy Town, so okay. I would imagine I'll it's say, Chirac. I'll say Chirac then. Okay. But yeah, Even no, I like this. Ch- it's not Chicago. <laughs> it's Chicago. No, I th- I, when he gets a lot of women in a room hanging out, he's, he's really good at capturing just the rapport that they share. Or at the very least, he's he, or at the very least, they're fine as people discussing an issue. Yeah, that none of I don't know if he th- those scenes aren't naturalistic to me necessarily. Those scenes aren't. I think I think they're just compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, Jungle Fever is it's a, it's a miss. But uh, it's it uh, you know. It was followed by Malcolm X, so... Second masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly a labor of love. Yeah. Um, oh, you want to talk about labor? You know what? <laughs> <laughs> they get this fucking movie made. Yeah, but... You want, you want to talk about, like, the insane amount of freedom Spike Lee had as a filmmaker... <laughs> had as a filmmaker in the studio system. Like, he... That fucking Rodney King opening is in Malcolm X in 1992. Yeah. Like, when he first showed this to to the studios, it's funny because like the first cut he showed to the studios was the same day the Rodney King beatings happened. Wow. Yeah. So that, that so that that was a that was a later at you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty wild. <laughs> but and it's the the only thing you can say that I can say bad about this entire movie is that one moment makes the movie a little dated in a way it didn't necessarily need to be. Yeah, I guess that's true. But on the other hand, like. It's fucking powerful. <laughs> yeah, well, with Malcolm X's words yeah, going over like it's that. Really po- it's a really powerful choice. Now, you know, because I know you've been critical of biopics in the past, and some of the reviews I read were actually critical of, like, oh, this is kind of mm-hmm. Spike Lee's straightforward biographical narrative. Mm-hmm. And it was underwhelming in that regard. Like, it should have had more of that fire and energy to it. Mm-hmm. But how does, you know, like, a three-and-a-half-hour biopic not feel too long or too labored or like you know people use the word it's it is a conventional biopic because it goes from point a to point b to point c in somebody's life how does this differ for you what makes it all right powerful so here's the problem with biopics the problem with biopics is you don't love johnny cash because of the story of his life you love those albums he recorded you love those songs he did yeah you might find the man who recorded them interesting but that doesn't necessarily make a good story You know, people don't have three act lives. People have eight act lives. Mm -hmm. People, they are this, and then they're this, and then they're this, and then they're this, and then I went through this period, and I went through this period, and then, and then Bowie went to Berlin, and then, you know, like, people don't have three act lives. People don't have one arc that follows them from birth to death. Mm -hmm. And to make a movie that way is just boring. It is. And Walk the Line's a great example of that. Spike Lee read the autobiography of Malcolm X in junior high and it changed his life it opened his mind it's <laughs> spike spike lee went to the went to the fucking source we we may have seen do the right thing and bamboozled and open our minds yeah. at, the, at that age spike lee went to the fucking source he read the autobiography of malcolm x as told to by alex haley that book has changed millions and millions of people's lives because of the story of Malcolm X's life. Yeah. Malcolm X had the most filmable life in American history because Malcolm X had a fucking three-act life. No <laughs> Malcolm shit. X had an hour, like that. this movie is about an hour of Malcolm X's days uh, as in running the numbers and mm-hmm. as a thief and dating white women and drinking. It's about an hour of him being in prison and finding enlightenment and working under... Uh, Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam, and it's about an hour of 
him being betrayed by Elijah Muhammad and realizing that he had to trust himself and he had to rely on himself. Yeah. And that was his adult life. He, you know, he was a child. You see a little bit of his childhood. You see where he came from. His adult life had three distinct acts and those and those three distinct acts, all of them were the important parts of why he that book has changed millions of people's lives. If you read that if you read that book by the way, you you think watching Malcolm X is like a really entertaining awesome movie, like the book is that movie just captures the book because the book is written in first person. It's written in first person. You know, obviously, it's uh, he told it to Alex Haley, and him and Alex Haley shaped the book together, right? right. Um, because you know, Malcolm X was Malcolm X is you know Malcolm X is many things. He's not a prose writer. He's not necessarily an author. Um, so him and Alex Haley, who you know was the writer of Roots, he they shaped that book together. And you read that book, and the dialect changes depending on what period of his life he's in. He's, you, oh, interesting. You, you read the story of him, you know, running numbers. You read the story of him robbing people, and he, you know, and he's talking like a gangster. And you know, he's not glorifying it in any way. He's always quick to say, like, I was, I was, you know, I was under the spell of alcohol and poison, the way millions of men are under the alcohol spell, uh, uh, spell of alcohol and 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 poison thinking and self hatred mm-hmm. and. Like, he doesn't glorify it at all, but he talks, you know, he's been on the streets. That's where he was raised. He was illiterate when he got to prison. The character in Malcolm X, the movie, who teaches him about the dictionary, there is no such character. He was exposed to... Wasn't he like an amalgam of different people? He was... No, it it was... I mean, it didn't even work that way, though, because what happened was his brother... One of Malcolm's brothers visited him in prison and had joined the Nation of Islam. And his brother said, look, I'm going to help you out, all right? What you need to do is stop smoking cigarettes, stop eating pork, and I, you know, some other tenets of Islam. He didn't say that what it was. He just said, you have to do this. And Malcolm was like, okay, this is like a scam I'm going to go on. If I do this, I'm going to start looking pale. They're going to send me to another whatever. He started doing this for a while, and he didn't know why he was doing it. He felt you – know, he didn't know what he felt about it. And eventually, after doing it for a long time, his brother revealed to him, like, I've joined the Nation of Islam. This is, you know, this is where black people come from. This white people are the devil. You know, like, he, he, he gave him the whole spiel. And Malcolm Body was crazy at first, but he, you know, it made sense to him. You know, he's in prison. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, it makes sense to him. Uh, there's a reason people find religion in prison, you know. And Malcolm realized, like, he wanted to write letters to uh, Elijah Muhammad, and he couldn't because he couldn't write. Uh, you know, he was a good student when he was a child, but he dropped out of school very young. Mm-hmm. Um, so he copied every page out of the dictionary, and that was and that was how he learned all the. You know that that's how he sort of opened his mind. He literally hmm. copied every page of the dictionary. That's how he taught himself how to write, and that's the part in the book where he reveals the difference between white and black in there and stuff. So that character that's a, that's, that's also an interesting idea. I, yeah, it's also great because like. It shows what a good storyteller Spike Lee is, because if Spike Lee literally just said, I'm going to take the events of the book, I'm going to put them on film, it wouldn't have been as interesting that multiple scenes where his brother visits him, and yeah, mm-hmm. and then there's a voiceover where Malcolm's like, I didn't know why I was doing it, but I just had to do it. Well, that'd be like, horrible. It wouldn't have been... It's interesting, so he invented but he, this But he invented character. a character. That's the thing. Like, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I mean, that's not accurate, but it's so... Compelling. I think accuracy the the movie. is. I don't. I don't think accuracy belongs <laughs> in fictional films. <laughs> like, like you can be accurate in certain things. You don't want to misrepresent things. You don't yeah. want to whitewash history. Um, you don't want to. Well, even Errol Morris, he, he manipulates scenery or something. Yeah, just I to mean, oh, yeah. Do, in I should I say fictional films. I should yeah. just say 
I should just say art. <laughs> like everyone, everyone has a subjective point of view, and I think the idea that like, I think the idea that Argo was a worse movie because it lies about how, what a close call they were on the runway. Like, I think that's bullshit. Like, good, I'm glad they fucking lied because it's a more exciting movie, and yeah. that's the point of the movie. So, like, I, I don't. I'm certainly not conflicted about it, even though. It, in a way, it makes you less. It makes Malcolm less of a self-sufficient person. That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. But like, like, would it be more interesting just to watch him do all this on his own as opposed to have a character like Blaine? No, it would not. It, that scene in the dictionary where that they are having that discussion where he's like, "Well, black." It's like, what do you mean? Like, he he's not buying it. Yeah. He's, the guy gave him some nutmeg so he could come down, but like, he's not really buying what this guy's selling, and he needs that fight there. Because that transition is so important. If you just have, one day I was sitting in prison, I was myself. Then one day I was sitting in prison, I began to think, maybe I'll change, and I'll change. Like, (laughs) that's not cinematic. No, it's not. And, you know, Spike Lee is a fucking storyteller. He is very good at telling story. He's just a great director. He's a very thoughtful, talented director formally, in addition to being a provocative writer of screenplays. Um, And, yeah, Malcolm X... The best thing you can say about it is it does Malcolm X justice. <laughs> you know, hundred like, percent. Yeah, but I mean, I I can see the argument of like the, the playfulness with form or you know some of the quick mm-hmm. editing style that he does, especially in something like He Got Game, isn't present here. No, but th- that's fine. It doesn't fit the movie. It no. wouldn't. It wouldn't have fit the movie. You still have a little bit of it. You still have. I mean, obviously, the opening is not a traditional yeah. biopic opening. When he gives great speeches, yeah, he he, he sort of does kind of like a little montage here. And Some there. of those speeches are improvised by Denzel. Denzel oh, would right, have right, a yeah. Denzel would have a speech that Malcolm actually said, mm-hmm. and Spike Lee would about, he would finish it. Spike Lee would about to say cut. Denzel would just keep going. Yeah, because Denzel took a year off. There's only one movie that Denzel was in that <laughs> Denzel was in in 1992, and that was Malcolm X. Because Denzel took a he year. He did the off. method actor thing. Yeah, he he became he didn't become a Muslim, but he stopped eating pork. He stopped smoking cigarettes. He stopped drinking alcohol. He prayed every day. Wow. Um, and so yeah, no, Den- he, yeah. I think I, I heard that he sort of felt that the spirit of of Malcolm X took him took over him. Yeah. When he's giving those speeches. Yeah, or you know that that is a, I mean, I don't necessarily believe in that sort of thing personally. Uh, I, I have no problem with him believing that or whatever, but also like that is a way of describing what being in the moment as a character yeah. when you're an actor is. Right. But um, being in the, in the zone. Like so, if yeah. you like Spike Lee movies because they're aesthetically daring, and you don't really care about what they're about, you just are you're just in it for the formal reasons. I can see Malcolm X being one of your least favorite movies, but I think Malcolm X as a man is totally compelling. I I liked Malcolm X a lot. Before I read, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and after I read it, I I realized, like, what a miracle of an adaptation <laughs> it is, um, and what a miracle of performance it is. Because Denzel Washington obviously is convincing as the handsome, charming uh, criminal, God. like, but you absolutely buy that transition. 100%. It does not look like it does not look like the charming, the charming, handsome Hollywood actor put on glasses and. You know, and started doing a Malcolm X impression. Mm-hmm. Like he changes in that yeah, movie. Yeah, he embodies the three different versions beautifully. Yeah, yeah. and there's uh, and there's and and also there's like there's some real fucking grim shit in that movie. Like that movie, like that scene where it just cuts to the to the kitchen table and they're all loading pistols. 
they're just like that scene oh, yeah. fucking gives me the the shakes like that creeps me out it's so like they're just preparing for war like there's some real shit in that movie mm-hmm. it isn't just like a nice biopic about a great man who was always great and he was always right and great like you know he was evolving he was evolving all the way up to his death you yeah. know um and it does it does that it does it does the man Malcolm X justice and that is and that's mm-hmm. really something and you know I think in modern, you know, in the modern landscape, I, I almost feel not necessarily. I oh yeah, I do feel as a direct result of Walk Hard, the modern <laughs> landscape does not really tolerate soup to nuts, birth to death biopics anymore. Yeah. Like you, Ray and it might Walk happen every yeah. once in a while. You might get that fucking bad Tom uh, Hank Williams biopic oh. with Tom Hiddleston, but it doesn't do anything. No one thinks it's great. It's no. not going to get nominated for anything. Um, and this, you know, so now the the world that we're living in now, you're going to have the great Martin Luther King movie is going to be Selma. It's going to be about one moment and have that represent his life and this man and the, his struggle and the, the period of time he lived in and where he fit in there. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, I, I love Selma. I think that's a great movie. And I think, but I think, I think Malcolm X had a uniquely, had a very unique life. Uh, or I guess you can't be very unique. He had a unique life. Um, and was uniquely suited for a three-act biopic. Uh, that does not feel long at three and a half no, hours. It, does, it's got, it still has Spike Lee's energy to it. Yeah, I would say it so. It still has his humor. Um, you know, when, he, when, when, Mal, when, when Malcolm Little becomes Malcolm X, he doesn't lose his sense of humor. Um, you, you, when you see the eye contact he makes with people and you see the connections he's making with people on the streets when he's preaching and stuff... You know, you understand why people loved him so much, and you understand Absolutely. why he made such an effect. It. And it wasn't because he was the angriest and the loudest; it was because he felt people. He, mm-hmm. you know, and that's because he'd been there. You know, it, he had been the lowest of the low, and so that three act structure is so necessary. If it was just say the last day of Malcolm X, and in and it was a movie about like one period, of, like the last week of his life or something like that. Like you wouldn't get that. Like Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's about Malcolm X's suicide. Let's, let's get to know everybody that works in the hotel. Yeah. Like oh. what, what do the people in the kitchen think? Yeah. I can't believe, I can't believe Malcolm X is dead. Yeah, that was good. That was necessary. <laughs> <laughs> On a great use of uh, Sam Cooke's and that's my, one of my all time favorite songs. A change is going to come probably some of the best uh-huh. lyrics ever written. And just a, a fantastic, like, foreshadowing of what's about to happen with the woman, like, saying Jesus will protect you, and, like, him just walking, gliding mm-hmm. along, almost ghost-like, and that song is playing, like, that, yeah, and just the that... build-up to the assassination is so effective. Yeah, and, and when you're in that situation, and this is, this is true of, of Martin Luther King as well, like, you have accepted that you are not as important as your, as your cause. You are not as important as what you are doing for yeah. other people. And, you know, it's it's not like he knew that was the day he was going to die, but he knew every day was the day he could die. Um, and he was prepared for it. And that is, you know, that's why that's such a, yeah, it's, uh, that's why it's so moving. Um, because he went anyway. He went right up and he's not frisking anything. He, mm-hmm. you know, he orders them not to frisk anyone who's coming in. And his trip to Mecca yeah, is so beautiful. Like, that. there's never been a Hollywood movie ever that has depicted Muslims in that way. You know, Spike Lee is not even Muslim, mm-hmm. but Spike Lee just sees the beauty of these people and that moment. And it's a beautiful moment in the book as well, where 
where Malcolm X's, you know, Malcolm X had his own head, little head explosion moment where he realizes that there are white Muslims and there are Asian Muslims and there are, you know, there there are African Muslims and he meets them all in Mecca and and what's funny is uh, it's not in the movie, but he, you know, he had a relationship with Muhammad Ali and Muhammad Ali is part of the Nation of Islam. So once the Nation of Islam turned their back on Malcolm X, he couldn't talk to him anymore. But when he went to when he first went to Mecca, everyone was flocking to him and they, like he was a celebrity, and he was like, "Well, yeah, I, you know, I'm Malcolm X. That's fine." <laughs> and then eventually, he realized that everyone thought he was Muhammad Ali. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is another masterpiece. Yeah, in every way, a lot of pre- a lot of pressure on Spike Lee. Uh, there's a he uh, he wrote a he, he had, like published the diary because he you know he's a journaler, um, and he published the diary about like the making of Malcolm X during. He says. You know, like every every day, some some person would come up to him off the street and be like, "Don't fuck it up." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. Don't fuck it up now. <laughs> yeah. Now, I have a question for you. Yeah, go for it. What if Spike Lee made my girl? <laughs> <laughs> what if Spike Lee took a year off <laughs> after Malcolm X? He 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 had a year long exhale, and then when he came back, um, he made Crooklyn. Oh, God. I was surprised by how much I love this movie just because I heard it, I've all, like, dismissed as lesser Spike yeah. Lee. Well, no, well, everyone, again, the thing that he gets associated with is, oh, he makes angry political movies. Right. He does. I mean, he does make angry political movies, but that's not the only facet of Spike Lee. Again, the, the thing Spike Lee does really well is get a bunch of flawed, conflicting people into one place of all and listen to here. them fight. Yeah. And you are raising a house with five kids and you got you got two tenants upstairs, and you got a you got a, an out of work musician father, and you got a mother who has to raise the household and work and keep everyone supported. You got a lot of fucking fighting. Mm-hmm. This movie is one of the most joyful, fun, uh, vivid, just beautiful depictions of childhood ever. I think. I mean, for me, there's Four Hundred Blows, there's E. T. and there's Crooklyn. Those are the, <laughs> those are the three movies about kids. And don't don't fucking hmm. talk to me about that Charlie Chaplin movie. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's more hundred blows, yeah. T and Crooklyn. Well, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting because I mean, you you get a sense of his, um, you know, his personal history throughout a lot of his films, but this is so direct. I mean, he collaborated with his brother and sister on uh-huh. the script, so that I really like movies that get that personal to where it's literally a depiction of this is what it was like to grow up in my household and at this particular time, and I think that. Um, Delroy Del, Del Del Lindo Delroy Lindo is in this movie. fucking great. At, like both parents, two two incredible depictions of parents. It's a great. Parents. They make a great on-screen couple. Yeah, absolutely. Their fight scene is one of the greatest relationship fights I've ever seen. Because again, like they both believe that they are coming from the right place, mm-hmm. uh, and they yeah. both you can tell they're they're not absolutely hostile to each other like they care about each other they don't want to hurt the other one but at the same time they must be heard and that yeah the, the scene where the, she's fighting about his bounce checks is so great she is absolutely out of control wonderful mm-hmm. um yeah the, the whole film is really poignant and sweet I, I love the dynamic of the family and i love the choice to um Tell the you know focus on Troy as kind of the lead mm-hmm. throughout this. Was, this yeah. Stories by Joy Lee, his sister, who you know she plays his sister in Do the Right Thing. She plays the best friend, and she's got to have it. She's been in a bunch of his movies. Yeah, um, she was in you know she's in School Days. She's uh, she's one of Denzel's lovers in Mo Better Blues. 
Um, I'll, I'll also, but yeah, uh, as an aside, she plays the aunt in this uh, at the end of the movie. Oh, okay. I didn't recognize um, As an aside, I fucking love Joy Lee, and it sucks that she's only in Spike Lee movies. Yeah. I, I really think she's a, a fun, on, she's not like the greatest actress in the world or anything, but I think she's a really fun presence. Um, I think so, too. And I always like seeing her in his movies, and it's a shame no, that she No, she stands really... out and, and do the right thing. I think she's, I mean, maybe if yeah. her character isn't 100% fully realized, I No, but she's she... good in it. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And everybody's good in this. Like, the, the, I think the behavior of the kids, I mean, maybe the brothers are sort of like an afterthought, but I think that, I think that's that's exactly what it's like to grow up in Spike Lee's yeah. family. It was. It feels like, and this is, I mean, I don't. I didn't read anything about the writing process of this, but it is written by Spike, his brother, uh... Sink, I want to say. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Hmm. Uh, it's C-I-N-K-Q-U-E. Uh, so however you pronounce that. Um, and Joy, they are the screenwriters of this film. And it really does just feel like three siblings sitting down and reminiscing about childhood and saying, do you remember the time when? Yeah. It's, it doesn't have a strict uh, narrative throughout. There's, you know, there's obviously through lines with the, the money problems of the family and the, and the tensions between the mother and the children and the mother mm-hmm. and the father. Um, but it does. It there is no plot. It is, it is. Uh, it's sort of just the stream of consciousness uh, memories that they have of growing up and being five little hellraisers in a in a park house in in, uh, in Brooklyn. And um, what, do you but think, I, what do you think about the glue sniffers? The, they're fun. <laughs> <laughs> they're fun. They're fun. I, lo- I mean, that scene where they the, where they they sniff glue and then. The camera flips upside down and then yeah. they're floating down the street yeah, yeah, upside yeah. Like, I, That's it's, great. It's, it feels, yeah, it feels lived in. And, you know, you even almost, you know, they're, they are the most villainous people <laughs> in the movie. But you even kind of feel for them because one of them, you know, he's missing his right, you know, he's an amputee. Oh, yeah. You get the feeling that may, you know, maybe because of the time it is, you know, it's the late 70s, you know, maybe he's a Vietnam vet or, or something. You know, they have a... Uh, Vic, oh, my man Vic. Everyone loves Vic. Vic is the Radio Rahim of this movie. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> everyone gets excited when Vic shows up. Vic is a a, a Vietnam vet with PTSD mm-hmm. who lives upstairs, and so you get you definitely get a sense of time and place. I mean, certainly get a sense of time from the fucking soundtrack because it's wall to wall like classic R and B music. It was like listening to my dad's Motown collection. Yeah, it's really great. The the, the soundtrack in this is insane. It's yeah. really great. Um, it's a sweet slice of nostalgia pie. Uh huh. And it's also like <laughs> it's also it also almost remi- it also reminded me of uh, Everybody Wants Some because it is like this cat yeah. it's like this it is like which this is also encyclop- very plotless. Yeah, it's an encyclopedia of of games <laughs> because uh-huh. it, the kids are constantly playing new games. They're obviously doing double dutch. They're doing hopscotch, but but they're yeah. also playing like a statomatic baseball where mm-hmm. they're rolling the dice and stuff. They're also playing, you know, they're. They're they're uh, they're playing. Uh, I don't even know the names for some of these games. So they're trying to take the can from the oh, from the middle. Yeah. There, it's constantly about you know children at play, and it is again like it is this revolutionary sort of image to have this coming of age story about a black child and not have it be about poverty. Mm-hmm. Like they have money problems, they're not rich, but. But all, but like it is not about the hardships of growing up black in America. It is about the joy. Of grow of their of their childhood. Yeah, and it's an interesting visual choice, and you know where I'm going with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To change, like when you go to a relative's for the first time, it's a little awkward and strange, and it does feel like your reality is turned upside down, or at least askew. And what does Spike Lee do? 
with the lens. <laughs> he switches. <laughs> he switches to anamorphic lens. Yeah. What and a weird choice. The aspect ratio, like, so the result of this is uh, there's a point where uh, the character of Troy, the main character, the little girl, the lead of the movie, she gets sent uh, down to Georgia to stay with her, mm-hmm. to, to stay with her aunt and uncle and cousin, and he switches to anamorphic lens so everything stretches out and everything just looks... It looks fucked up. Like, yeah, sometimes you, you, yeah. Know, you watch a music, uh, you watch something on YouTube and it looks like the wrong ratio. Like, everything, everyone is stretched out. Yeah, it was compressed wrong or rendered differently. Yeah, like someone, it, that, that is what this movie looks like. They had to have, you know, they had for signs good, on the. For a good long stretch. They had si- yeah, yeah, it is not a scene. It doesn't slowly go back. Like, when she acclimates the entire time in Georgia. Yeah. Is like that they had signs on the box office when this movie came out saying, like, there's nothing wrong with the projector. Once they go to Georgia, <laughs> all bets are off. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but, um, like, I, I personally find that very irritating. <laughs> but I have heard from people who grew up in, you know, I grew up in the suburbs. So what do I know? I, I grew up in Texas. Uh, I grew up in an area that looks shockingly like the neighborhood that she goes to visit in Atlanta. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I, what do I know about, like, the shock of first going to the country or whatever? But I've heard from people who grew up in urban city environments. The first time they went out to the country, it was a fucking uncanny, weird, surreal experience that they couldn't put their finger on. And he's, and they say that watching Crooklyn captures that perfectly. Yeah, well, for me, it's like the reversal going to the suburbs to the big, scary city uh-huh. and visiting my grandparents there. It felt like a whole other world. Right. I mean, yeah, that's also part of why it's like so revolutionary is the mi- the middle class black family yeah. is not seen as the ideal. It's not seen as something that she should aspire to. It's something that she needs to escape as soon as she can. Right. You know, a movie I'd recommend since you're a big fan of this one is a movie called Claudine. Yeah. And it's from 1974. I think it stars, I want to say Diane Carroll and... Uh, younger, obviously, James Earl Jones. Uh-huh. And it's about a single black mom trying to raise six kids oh, yeah? uh, on welfare. So it's a little th- thematically similar, uh-huh. but it's it's really sweet. It's a, it's a really great movie about struggle. Yeah. that uh, It's almost like the Alice doesn't live here <laughs> anymore, too, of that time. Oh, but, cool. So yeah. it's, like, it's, it's, like, it's like the African-American Alice yeah. doesn't live here anymore. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. So I, I, I think you'd, if you'd like this. I, 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 can, I can't imagine Spike Lee not being a fan of that. Uh, we might have it at my store, so maybe I'll just put that on when I go to work later today. Uh, so, yeah, and there's, there's wonderful scenes all throughout this. The scene where she goes to the corner store and she sees RuPaul dancing oh, yeah. with the tiny, tiny yeah. Latino man. That's awesome. To never go back to Georgia is such a weird moment. And again, like a moment of a musical moment in this. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's sort of like you remember those moments from childhood, like seeing somebody different for the first time yeah. in a public setting, almost like in Tree of Life when uh-huh. you see somebody like in a wheelchair for the first time. Or just, you know, some somebody that's... It's totally out of your radar. It totally imprints on her. Yeah, she it's all she cannot take her eyes off it, and the and the the camera just lingers on them forever mm-hmm. as she stares at them, and uh, that's a great scene. The I I almost I don't. There's something so beautiful about the scene where they're all whisper singing to the Partridge Family. Oh yeah, and or watching Soul Train. It, well, I mean specifically the scene where they're not allowed to watch TV on a school night, and there are. You know, I yeah. woke up in love this morning. They're singing to the Partridge family that they're watching on TV, and their mom is downstairs. She yells up, Are you guys watching TV? And they all <laughs> yell, No! And then they just turn it down, and they're still singing along. So they're just, they're just like, I woke up in love. <laughs> it's a really powerful moment because it's also, 
it's also it shows like the difference between the beginning of this movie and the end of this movie is that at the beginning of this movie they're watching the Partridge Family, at the end of this movie they're watching Soul Train, and that is a, a very interesting observation about like the difference between the mid and uh, late seventies. You know, yeah. that by the end of it they're singing along to Afro Sheen uh, <laughs> commercial jingles, <laughs> yeah. and, and um, uh, where they're all singing along to Partridge Family. I think that's a beautiful moment. I think so. The thing I was talking about earlier in the podcast about gender roles in this movie is so and this is autobiographical um regina or i watched this with regina before and they were not a big fan of this moment where at the end of the movie the mom uh very quickly gets taken to the hospital over something and then dies very soon after that yeah Yeah, it's a very sudden death cancer if i recall uh yes she gets taken to the hospital for one thing and then she gets she the cancer is discovered and she dies quickly after that which is actually what was, happened what yeah. happened in you know for Spike and Joy and Sinkley um so it it does feel it it, it feels abrupt which it kind of necessarily feels abrupt because that's yeah. the, the way it happens in the movie but the so the arc of this movie is in throughout the entire film the mother is the antagonist because you're kids and you mm-hmm. want to get a you want to you want to pull shit all the time. So the mom's the antagonist because she's dad's the disciplinarian. Cool. He plays yeah. music. You know. Dad's dad's the dad's the nice one who brings you a pound cake, but calls it sand cake. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a different kind of cake. I remember watching that being like, I don't know what sand cake is, but um, uh, the mother is you know the mother is this antagonist, but she has a few tender moments with Troy, um, who's the only who's the only girl out of all these children and. She and so when the mother dies, Troy ends up having to sort of be the woman of the house. She's sort of looking after her brothers and like combing their hair the way her mother did. And Troy's like 13 or 12, maybe 11, even like. And the movie ends with her sitting behind the gate watching all the other kids run out and play, but instead of instead of portraying this as like this sad like kind of tragic loss of childhood of girlhood it's like it's portrayed as well and then this is how she became an adult and she became a woman and isn't that like the circle of life hmm. which is fucked up <laughs> like, a little bit it's, it's fucked up that it's like I mean and your you mom know, died now you be, essentially have to, to take, be fair, take it's not place. just written by, Spo- by Spike Lee it's written by Joy as well and it's Joy's story um, you know, Joy is Troy. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I but after losing a parent, you, you have to take on more responsibility mm-hmm. than you originally thought. But I feel the arc of the movie is about Troy wishing to be older and grown up, and that is the role she finally takes at the end of the movie. There's a good Bell Hooks uh hmm. wrote a good essay about Crooklyn, and I don't agree with everything in it. Uh Bell Hooks is more critical of Crooklyn than I than I am. Uh, in of certain parts of Crooklyn and the way the mom is than I am, but uh, uh, Bell Hooks wrote a really good article about this or a good essay um, about Crooklyn and about the way that Troy uh, Troy becoming prematurely having to become an adult and take care of this household is not commented on really or seen as a negative thing. It's seen as inevitable, inevitable, and the circle of life and like. It when really it's it's kind of a that's actually the it ends with a tragedy that doesn't know it's a tragedy. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's totally a little off in that regard. Yeah, like it should be a more tragic. And, but if you're you know if you are someone who is old fashioned and believe that the role of the woman is to take care of the household and raise kids, 
then you might believe that that is a nice ending because that's Troy like getting through her mom's death and yeah. coming out the other end a woman. But if you are someone who believes that like rigid gender roles like that are fucked up, then that's a fucked up ending. But it's not Tyler Perry level of no, that. No, no, it, Troy, Troy does not start guzzling vodka and beating <laughs> Janet Jackson. It's not right. It's not. It's not Tyler Perry fucked up. But it is still like for a movie I adore so much, and I do love Crooklyn so much. Like it's. I'm not. That's an I interesting that thought. Ending. I'm going to consider that further, and when I rewatch it, I'll I'll see how I feel about it with that in mind. Because that's no, that's an interesting point. I think it's more just. I get emo- any time a parent dies in oh, the movie, sure, sure. it's like I get emotionally yeah. caught up in that to really yeah. not think about that specifically. But no, that's that's a really good point. I think she, uh, they made. Yeah, yeah. Um, now we talked about the weird anamorphic lens in uh, in Crooklyn in Clockers. It's kind of a bold style as well. That's the first thing I noticed. Hey, what, what do you like about? Do you like? How do you feel about Clockers? I do like it. Yeah. I do like it quite a bit. I remember liking it more. Before I saw the wire, and <laughs> the but, wire fucked up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's legitimately capital G great shows that you can now go back and you're like, oh, the wire did though. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, rewatching this, the first thing that struck me was that high contrast look. Yeah, with its like bright neon colors. Yeah, it's that, kind of it's the saturated colors and washed out. Yeah. I, I, it seemed like a vastly different approach than what Ernest mm-hmm. Dickerson did back then. I think he, Lee works with uh, a guy named Malik Saeed, if I okay. recall. Um, and they they went out of their way to get this rare Kodak film stock for, mm-hmm. for, for some reason. I think it was mostly used by the Air Force and not NASA. The, the, way, I, the way I interpret the look of clockers is the constant pressure and fear and anxiety that you have when you are a drug dealer of going to prison of the cops showing it like the outside world is very oppressive when when uh when uh what's the strike not spike mm-hmm. strike <laughs> when yeah. strike is outside play, played by Mackay Pfeiffer very good performance when strike is outside he is exposed he is vulnerable and there's there's murders that can happen people are going away to jail you know you don't know what's going to happen he he's made it this far he he's a good head on his shoulders he doesn't do any drugs he's in he's smart he listens he does what he's told and this movie is about him making all of the right moves as far as what his perception of what the right moves are and what the quote unquote rules of the drug game are mm-hmm. and the system fucking failing him yeah um and him getting sort of sunk into this quicksand o- over this uh, murder that he's asked to commit. Um, so I feel that the idea of the of the look of the movie is to feel almost assaulted, like, while you're outside. Since he's exposed, then the cinematography should be overexposed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't it's, think it's as good looking. It's it's a bold choice. I'll say I like that it much. when he does it sporadically, like like I mentioned with 25th Hour and the mirror Yeah, sequence. 25th Hour has a bit of that, yeah. Yeah, when, when it's highlighted... Sporadically, I'm more okay with it mm-hmm. here. It's it's fairly consistent, yeah. And I I think it, it's like I just become hyper aware of the grain. I, I it's everywhere. also it's also a movie I've only ever seen on the first releases of the DVDs that came out, and I wonder if it's a movie that looks better on Blu-ray. I haven't. Yeah, I don't know, or on film or whatever, because sometimes those high contrast getting they can get too washed out one if it's a bad transfer. I immediately thought of Robert Richardson and the overhead lighting because there's a lot of that too in some of the interrogation scenes. Mm-hmm. There's just like, you know, the choice to have everything brightly lit coming down from like the ceiling. Yeah, 
that is, is, is I just sort of associate that now mm-hmm. with like Oliver Stone and JFK and you know some of Tarantino's films and now here it's 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 something I just become very aware of that I don't necessarily dislike but it's just oh here look at that look yeah, yeah. as opposed to just kind of being fully immersed it's the in first the story. Of, it's the first of his films that doesn't look beautiful <laughs> Because yeah. he makes beautiful looking movies at this point. We haven't really sp- said much about that. We're talking about like the things he does with the camera. But the actual like Ernest Dickerson is a great cinematographer. Absolutely. And, and Do the Right Thing and Crooklyn and Malcolm X and all of these films, even you know Jungle Fever, they all look gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the first movie they make, in his. They made me want to live in Brooklyn. Like yes. I'm just like that's such a beautiful scenery. This is sort of this is sort of also where Spike Lee is departing and becoming more overtly experimental. Um, yeah. Uh, in in terms of this choice, but then like later on, you're just going to see he'll start experimenting with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, even mini DV cameras. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> you want to talk about looks that you're not thrilled with? Mm-hmm. We can talk about bamboozles later. Indeed. Um, uh, I Clockers is a really great book and it's a good movie. I th- That's how I feel. Like I mean, it's a good movie. It's not one that's like essential. I think I w- would prefer to watch Inside Man as like the, the escapist Spike Lee kind of film, mm-hmm. like his take on a Sidney Lumet movie essentially. But um yeah, no, I like Clockers and I certainly like all the performances. Again, Delroy Lindo is fantastic yeah. in this. Very um, different father figure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll say so. But um, yeah, no, I mean, like the you know Harvey Keitel is in this, and he's very good. Um, and j- you know, some of the, there's there's definitely some of the racial tension boiling up, and like with Michael Imperioli's character and John Turturro and stuff. But um, yeah, I think I just don't get as emotionally invested as I would like. Although I think you know Strike is an interesting, complex character overall. I I kind of like the touch of him being into trains for some reason. Yeah. Um, again, like just little details like that that Spike Lee knows how to highlight very well that don't feel um, uh, superfluous in any way. Yeah, Clockers is a movie about every character in the movie is good at highlighting the impossible situation that Strike is in, um, mm-hmm. and the book the book. So this is originally a Scorsese movie, and it was going to focus on Harvey Keitel's character, the uh, homicide detective, um, who's investigating the murder of that strike was. And it's it's ambiguous. You don't see the murder, so uh, he's investigating the murder of this of this man that spi- that strike was told to kill. And strikes keeps saying he didn't do it, and then and strikes brother says that he did, and it doesn't make any sense. Um, and it is a. It's a it's a movie about the pressures of that are on strike because Martin Scorsese is really going to make it mostly about the detective and he had to fall out or whatever. I think it was originally even going to be like a De Niro movie. Hmm. Um, he fell out. Spike Lee came in. He rewrote it, um, uh, or worked on the rewrite with Richard Price because Richard Price adapted his own novel and made it more about Strike. Um, put the focus more on him. And it's about how he is trapped, and even before he went into dealing drugs, his other option was to be like his brother and become, you know, like, he stays the straight and narrow, he becomes the manager of a fast food restaurant who hates his life and and feels just as trapped as he does. Um, And Harvey Keitel, I like Harvey Keitel's character because he's sort of racist. Yeah. (laughs) Like, he is, he is trying, like, he isn't racist like his partners are. He's not just an openly bigoted, like, whatever, they're animals, we'll kill them. Like, Harvey Keitel is racist in that 
he doesn't like the idea. He's trying to find out the truth about this murder and is not because he wants justice is because he doesn't like the idea that someone's pulling one on him. Yeah. He hates the idea that he's being lied to mm-hmm. and his ego That's won't allow him. That's why he keeps going back to strike and questioning. Yeah. Um, and it's all about his ego, but he's not a, but at the same time, yeah, he's not like an open bigot. It's, uh, you know, and there's another character. There's a, uh, what's his name? Not Tony Todd. Uh, ooh. Oh. He's in They Live. Oh, Keith David? Yeah, Keith David's in this too, and he's like That's right. putting yeah. pressure on Spike from right. a different he's, angle, he's making him yeah. pay for the you know community service centers stuff and whatever. And it's a it's a cool movie. The book is really good. The book, the way that contrasts the book does a great job of contrast like the book is sort of proto wire in the way it mm-hmm. contrasts the way the, the different systems, the police the police system and the you know, and the and the drug system both fail the people inside it changes of it. perspectives yeah it, it switches perspectives each chapter oh, okay um, between the two hmm. and you know you so you get both their internal monologues and you see the story coming together but again you don't know who the actual killer is until the end it's a it's a good i think it's a good movie but i think it just it works so much better as a novel i would imagine that it would probably make the choice from harvey Keitel to just be like ah i'm gonna let you go you can get on this train a little bit more believable and not even it's. I believe it in. It makes it more resonant at the yeah, very least. Yeah, I, I, I certainly so. believe it in Clockers because I think Harvey Keitel realizes he has stepped into it. Like Harvey Keitel thinks that not every like Harvey Keitel is in denial about how fucked the situation is. Everyone else who says, "Well, they're just bunch animals killing each other," who are super cynical and nihilistic about it, mm-hmm. he wants to. He doesn't want to give them that, and you know, that, and they're not. They're not correct either, but they are. Their reaction to it is it's so overwhelming. I we can't deal with it, so fuck it. We won't even think about it. And his reaction is, no, I can control this. I can help. I can make a difference. And he finds out he can't. And he and I think the one way he can even atone for his uh, egoism is to sort of yeah okay realize that sending Strike to jail is not going to help anyone. Right. And there's also the kid. Like it's interesting. All the different people in Strike's life. There's the kid who looks up to him, they all sort of say so much about the world that he's living in and the situation he's found himself in. So I think it's a good movie. I don't, I just, I think it's a great novel. I think I'm going to take a quick pause so I can go to the bathroom. If man is the father, the son is the center of the earth in the middle of the universe, then why? Is this verse coming six times rehearsed? Don't freestyle much, but I write them like such. Word. Amongst the fiends controlled by the screens, what does it all mean, all this I'm seeing? <laughs> Human beings screaming vocal javelins, sign of a local unraveling. Uh-huh. Are you ready to get on the bus? Tell me about getting on the bus, Jim. Well, you know what? Before that, I remember hating Girl 6, and I just did not muster up the energy to rewatch it. And I couldn't get a hold of it, because it turns out, if you type girl6 into thepiratebay.com, what you get back is a bunch of fucking porn. Um, yeah. <laughs> girl69. Right, exactly. No, I mean, I, like, get on the bus. I, I, I ventured out to, I think it was Piper's Alley when that was a theater. Um, and, you know, I haven't been a fan of Spike Lee. I was just like... Yeah, I'm curious about this one because you know it's a Million Man March and you know it's a nice document and kind of a kind of a road movie, but it's just a pleasurable, if not a little overlong, kind of uh, ensemble piece with a great rapport and sort of sense of camaraderie throughout. With all these great actors, you mm-hmm. got Charles S. Dutton, um, 
and so many, so many greats. Andre Brower. Andre Brower. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Wendell Pierce. I, uh, yeah, Wendell Pierce. You got a. Uh, oh. <laughs> What's his name? He plays the father of the uh, of the son that he has that he's handcuffed to. He's in a bunch oh, of. Oh yeah, movies yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Forget his name. Me too. Damn it. That was the first of many films, including all the way up to Chirac, that he would be in. Yeah, it was made in like eighteen days, kind of guerrilla style. Yeah. You know, it, it feels, feels like it. Yeah, it's yeah. if you like what Spike Lee does, you will find that enjoyable. Yeah, <laughs> and is, I love dialogue-heavy road movies. Yeah, <laughs> so it is, but it is maybe the most didactic and least subtle movie he has made to date, uh, to date, or uh, certainly up to this point. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I like what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it's like it just it's just capturing a moment in time, historical moment in time. Um, yeah, and it's just interesting to just hear these guys, you know, uh, go back and forth on certain topics. And was this based on a play or something? It feels like it. Yeah, I don't think it was. It feels like a play. Hmm. <laughs> it's also, you know, obviously it's one location. They're on a. I don't. They're mind on a that. country cr- cross country road trip. Yeah, you got Andre Brower as an actor, is a cocky ass actor. Mm-hmm. But again, as I said earlier, being such a fan of when. Spike Lee is a little bit more formally playful and does interesting things. This is more restrained in mm-hmm. that reproach. But, I mean, it's, it suits the style. It, switch, it switches film stocks a lot and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, you start yeah. To it see, does like, he's dipping his toe into that Oliver Stone thing that's not mm-hmm. always great, where, like, he'll uh, keep switching before, between different film sources. and. Yeah, no, that's that's true. That's true. No, I, I like it. It's not, uh-huh. like, I don't, I don't know if it's upper tier. It's more of just... Spike Lee doing what he does very well again like you said getting a whole bunch of people together mm-hmm. um, and you know sometimes sometimes they argue and sometimes they you know just it, they're just a communal sense of I, I also say I should say like at this point like one of the reasons I love Spike Lee's movies so much and I've, I've talked about this in the past especially on the Robert Altman episode um, I don't relate to noble characters <laughs> I don't relate to good traits in people. If I see someone with a positive trait, I don't see that in myself ever. When I relate to characters, it is through their flaws. That is that Squid is in the whale. That is how I relate to people. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, um, that, that's, and that's a human experience to have. All of Spike Lee's characters are always flawed in some way, um, and that is why I like spending so much time with them. And that you know that was certainly one of Robert Altman's yeah. uh, gifts was taking flawed people and. And making you love them, uh, and, and to, to Robert Al- and Robert Altman, he would just like he would ennoble them. Oh yeah, but we we talked about McCabe and Mrs. Miller on that episode. But uh, I I find Spike Lee does the same thing with his characters. They're always there's they're always making mistakes. They're always flawed. They're always trying to be better people, and often failing. And I relate to that. So yeah, that's, that's why I enjoy spending time with his characters. Like yeah. get on the bus is one of those. Yeah, hundred percent. It's also it's also like. It's the first part where he's trying, like, he had gay characters and they're not good. <laughs> yeah, no, I know that. Did he write this? I don't think so. Okay, so. One of the more vital films in all Spike Lee's filmography is next. And, I mean, he certainly went on to do another documentary that is, like, essential Spike Lee, and that's When the Levees Broke. Mm-hmm. But this one is just. Every bit is essential. I think it's it's just so emotionally gut punching, especially like from the beginning, where it's archival footage with like a Joan Baez song about um, 
Birmingham Sunday and what happened. And you know, he of course it's a lot of interviews, but he all he frames them all differently. Some some faces are like on the extreme right side of the screen or the frame, and some are like his choice of framing each individual that he interviews is different. So it's never like just let's get him perfectly centered, you know, in an Errol Morris kind of style. So his his take on presenting a documentary is unique. But it's really just constant emotion in the best way that I can't I can't believe this you know this kind of stuff happened as frequently as it did back in those times. Um, but it also it's also an interesting choice for him to elaborate more um, on the perpetrators, and we get to learn about just their you know, bigotry, just what propelled them to do something well, I mean, this they're extreme. The, they're the reason there's an event. You know, the four girls did nothing to get bombed. Right, right. I mean, but like even just, he, he, you know, he, he does spend a, a little bit of time on um, Governor George Wallace mm-hmm. and his horrible statements at the time. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, and it's, it's just he, he decides to, I want to, you know, go to all parties and get their side of what happened. And it's not just like, let's mourn these four little girls. Let's learn about how this kind of situation occurs and what we can do to prevent it from, for the future. And then of course you have just the accounts of what these little girls were like and, you know, grandparents talking in ways that'll just stir you up. Um, I mean, it makes these girls unforgettable and elicits kind of these long-buried feelings of those who loved them. I know uh, one of them speaks of panic attacks she experienced after the bombing, shaken by the fear that not even church was safe anymore. I mean, it really captures that, the aftermath, in an incredibly um, moving manner that he does so well because he cares, and you can tell. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's 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 a eulogy. The whole movie is a eulogy, but it's also done in a very interesting way. Much like how I told you about Passing Strange, it's not just a filmed play. Uh-huh. It's really like fast-paced editing, interesting camera angles. Just Spike Lee doing a lot more than just like I'm going to put a camera somewhere and watch all you know watch everything in one frame. It's just being inventive in ways that you come to expect in his feature length work. And he does that here, but he does it with such a humane quality throughout. And, you know, the recounts from all the people that were there and that still remember what happened is really powerful. And it's just one of those emotional experiences that you'll never forget when you watch it. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's hard to watch. It's definitely hard to watch knowing this happened and, you know, but I'm, I, I really respond to movies that are fueled by grief and just like what people go through to process that grief and how they get over it or what they felt in that moment when something tragic happens. So even if it is just a lot of interviews, they're poignant and powerful throughout. So I think it's, I think it's an essential film yeah. of his. I'll have to check that out. You should, Patrick. You really, really should. I should and I shall. Yeah. What about He Got Game? I love it. Um, it really is... Uh, I, did not see, I did not see He Got Game, unfortunately. He wanted to do a basketball movie 
But again, he's so invested in character studies and flawed character studies. And a really great father-son relationship is at the core here. Um, early on, some of it is really put together in a flashy manner, like a music video. Just like, I mean, the opening credits are just basketball player after basketball player in, in, in the kind of fashion that you're used to Spike Lee doing. Um, but the whole movie, like the whole theme is really reconciliation, whether if it's with a father and son um, coming to terms with your talent as a, you know, ba- as a basketball player. But I think Ray Allen isn't the strongest actor in the world. He's he's kind of one note throughout most of the movie where and especially when you're paired up against like Denzel Washington uh-huh. who's phenomenal in this he's probably the the one the one element that kind of I would consider to be a weakness other th- other than of course an, uh, kind of like this just random subplot with Mila Jovovich as a prostitute with a heart of gold <laughs> uh, oh that's fun yeah yeah <laughs> and of course Denzel having you know just gotten out of prison you know, he hasn't had sex in how long? And what does he do? He hooks up with Mila Jovovich in this hotel, and they sort of get to know each other, and they have a connection of sorts that I just feel like it's it doesn't serve the, the overall theme or the story yeah. very well. It's just sort of tacked on there, and it's not it's something that probably could have been removed. Um, but you know, I think I think it's a I think it's a very good film about reconciliation and just. Him being so tor- so drawn towards uh, basketball and what it does and sort of how it creates these um, competitive dynamics, even with a father and son, because you know the father was an aspiring basketball player, but then you know he he was dealing drugs, if I recall, and winds up in prison. Um, no, wait, no, he doesn't. He accidentally kills his wife. What yeah. am I thinking of? Right, yeah, he accidentally kills his wife, um, and so there's a lot of obvious resentment from the son. But then, you know, he gets out of prison, and the whole time that they're together, every scene is really, really fascinating. So I just, I admire his ambition in mounting like a sports drama that also wants to be a probing father-son parable and kind of a modern religious examination. And I guess if not every single intention is brought to the surface in a satisfying narrative, we see how much of an impact it has on the characters. And we see how it has an impact on Jake and his, his, his basketball playing skills. And, you know, he wants to deny his father entirely at times, and he can't escape the fact that it is his father who made him the man that he is. So it's, it touches on a lot of um, issues and family dynamics again. But I think it's a, a compassionate and realistic uh, portrayal of a father and son that's better than an ordinary sports drama and far more emotional. He uses a lot of different lenses. Um, he does some interesting camera work and, and great art direction and just the kinds of things you come to expect more and more in his work. You know, you can clearly see his passion for the sport on display in a very inventive way where he does do interesting camera angles with just like how the ball goes into the hoop. But, you know, it's... I like it when Lee has these movies where he throws everything against the wall and see what sticks. Now, everything here doesn't stick, like I mentioned, but his ambition to try different things is here. I mean, he, he doesn't really necessarily like focus on a long game. It doesn't have the cliches of a sports movie. It doesn't have like the big game. Oh, yeah. You know, it has more just like a one-on-one game between father and son oh, okay. and what that means. Um, 
and it has like it has an ending that people kind of asked Spike Lee what was what was the deal with that ending, but in terms of what it means, for oh, does 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 Denzel like walk down the street and then a prostitute says, "I'll suck your cock for five dollars, Patty," <laughs> and he grabs her and yells, "No!" And then the camera uh, cranes in to his mouth. <laughs> After there was already a close-up of him saying no, then the camera cranes into his mouth saying no, and there's a freeze frame and it ends. He's throw. He's back and because that's how Jungle Fever ends. By the way, we never even actually said Jungle oh, yeah. Fever has the worst fucking ending. We we briefly yeah. referenced it, but that is how Jungle Fever ends. And it's exactly. terrible. He th- he's back in prison and he throws a basketball over the prison wall and it lands back into um, Ray Allen's court. Oh, that's nice. I like that. Yeah, yeah. That's you don't have to take that literally, obviously. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. But you know, I mean. When you when you hear Spike Lee's gonna do a basketball game or a basketball game, he does a basketball movie, you're you're anticipating certain things and I think they're well represented here in terms of like what we've talked about with having flawed characters and him being really fascinated with just people getting together and you know, this is the first appearance of Rosario Dawson, who again, you know, we've talked about Spike Lee not necessarily um doing justice to female characters. She's sort of an afterthought here. Yeah. She's just the girlfriend. But um, I really think Denzel sort of stepping out like a larger-than-life Malcolm X or a training day kind of role and just sort of playing a really flawed father is something that I think should be just as treasured in his filmography as something like Malcolm X. I think it's a great character, and he brings a lot to that role. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I think... Some of the playfulness that he does in Summer of Sam or 25th Hour are are here throughout a lot of this movie. So I, I kind of like... I just like his energy, and it's here. You you really like Summer of Sam. A lot. A lot, a lot. I do. I, Summer of Sam's fucking nuts. I know. That's kind of <laughs> what I love about it. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that why you love Summer of Sam? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, throwing a lot of things against the wall and seeing what sticks. But for me, like, this one, almost everything works, I think. Yeah? I think it could have been trimmed by maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and uh-huh. I feel that way about some some other Spike Lee movies, but um, just... He, he, he almost only makes movies that are over two hours. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't, yeah, that's true. He does not have, like, a quick 90-minute movie. I remember being sick to death of The Who when I saw this movie, but I, I didn't care watching this because I loved... How he puts together like this visually energetic. I like that he picks the Who song that is not guitar driven. <laughs> have the big montage where because Adrian Brody, punk I don't rock, think Adrian like, Brody's playing guitar to it. Would a punk rocker really be into the Who? The Who, yes. Early okay. Day, early yeah, no, days yeah, of punk yeah. rock. The Who was totally influential. Uh, sure. Okay. The the Who were not the first punk rockers. Their music doesn't sound like punk rock. Mm-hmm. But the Who's energy and. And they're no, and they're just sound level, and their aggressiveness and everything that is was very influential on punk rock. Yeah, um, among other things. So yeah, I think I think a punk rocker. I don't know. I don't know if like that's the band for him. He might probably like the Clash or the Ramones right, that's or an actual think. punk band if he is a fucking punk. That's the music he kind of plays. Right, he doesn't play the Who. But like those first big punk rock bands, especially the Sex Pistols and the Clash, were yeah. the Who was very influential. Well, it's definitely one of those songs. Now, when I hear, I just think of Adrian Brody and smashing a guitar and just like you know, <laughs> that, it just I don't know. Like it's a weird sequence. It is a very weird sequence. Like, What's the, the song that plays at the end when uh, 
David, uh, what's, what's the, what's Son of Sam's name? Berkowitz? David Berkowitz is being taken in. I like that sequence a lot. Yeah, I can't That's remember. another Who song, right? No, yeah, 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 yeah. It, is, it won't get fooled again. Won't, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good scene. Used much worse in the same year by American Beauty, if I recall. Oh, I don't remember that scene. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's the day he's about to die, and then all of a sudden they just play the Who song, Won't Get Fooled Again, I think. Um, it's when it becomes a Three's Company episode, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't stand American Beauty. But anyway, I, again, I think... American Beauty, also 1999 film. Right. <laughs> the year. The a lot year of people, of... A lot of people did not respond to this movie favorably at all. And it's I, a mess. It is to a mess, but it's a fascinating mess. And I like the fact that it's, you know, it's not also, like... Also, it's sold as a serial killer movie, and it is absolutely, absolutely not. 100% not a serial killer Because movie. it's Spike Lee, and he's more interested in, in relationship right. dynamics and characters. I, and I'm just saying, I'm not surprised racial people... Tensions. I'm not surprised people dismissed this upon its release. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something... I'm going to say something. Don't say Bad Boogie Nights. I'm going to say that shit. Don't say it. I'm going to say that. I'm not saying that uh, Summer of Sam is a better made film than Boogie Nights. I'm not saying Summer of Sam is necessarily a better acted movie than Booger Booger Nights. I'm just going to go with Booger Nights now. Uh, I think Summer of Sam is a better movie than Booger Nights. (laughs) 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 And then Boogie Nights. I think they both suffer from the same problems. I think Summer of Sam actually has more of a point to it. <laughs> I think as much as a fucking mess Summer of Sam is, I think Summer of Sam is pretty clearly about male insecurity and sort of thwarted masculinity and the way hmm. men try to assert themselves in different ways. Why do I always love those themes? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, whereas, you know, whatever Boogie Nights about is anyone's guess. Uh, it's other than like endless party sequences, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't. Really... Unlike Summer of Sam, which does not have endless party sequences <laughs> and great disco dancing. Oh yeah, that is. There's some. There's some great disco music in this song. Oh god, in this yes. movie. Um, but yeah, no, I don't. I don't really. Also, Summer of Sam does not take itself seriously. Not obviously, it's not like you have to like one or the other. It was just a thought I had as, as I was watching it. I'm like, this same has a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses of Boogie Nights. And I think I just like that Summer of Sam is a lot weirder and sillier. Yeah. Like, I, I, I think even, there's, there's weirdness to Boogie Nights, but I mean, I don't care that much about Mark Wahlberg's plight or his arc. We do not have to get into a conversation. This no, conversation no, I know here, that, but, but like, I actually, I genuinely care about Adrian Brody. I yeah. genuinely care about the relationship here. Um, I think Mira Sorvino is really great in this. I never really thought much of her as like, oh, she's got the most beautiful smile in the world, but... <laughs> She's really good in this. I yeah, think. she's well. Like it's. I think. I think the two, two movies she's very good in is because she's well cast. Because she's very good in Matt, Mighty Aphrodite and Good Here, and I think they're both. Yeah, well, she's good in Romeo and Michelle too. Oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not a big fan of that movie, but she's not bad in it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Summer of Sam is about just crazy '70s excess in the way the Boogie Nights is, um, in New York instead of L.A. Naturally, um. About and it's written by it's written by Spike Lee with Michael Imperioli. And, oh, that's right, yeah. And another actor who's in this, um, Victor something somebody. Else. And so this is the first. Caliccia. This is the first, uh, not the first, because obviously do the right thing. But uh, this is not. These are not jungle jungle fever Italians. <laughs> these no. are no, 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 no. They're pretty well written Italian characters. Yeah, I mean, I guess you know you can make a little bit of the argument of. 
kind of like Ben Gazzara playing a typical gangster boss. Oh, sure. But it's Ben I mean, Gazzara, and I'm just like, yeah. it, they're not. It's not challenging any stereotypes about Italians. Like, no. it is absolutely stereotypical Italians, but they're much better observed, and partly that's because Spike Lee wasn't the only one writing it. Um, yeah. No, that's that's a good point. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, they uh, they go through disco. They disco dancing. They go through different kinds of drug use. They swing. Uh, Adrian Brody plays this guy who used to be one of them, and now he's a punk rock guy, and everyone's like fucking freaked out by that. Yeah. Um, Such an irrational response to like a guy just wanting to have a meal at a restaurant. Yeah. I think... At the time, I'm not. I'm not sure. I was obviously. I was not in New York in 1978. If I was, I wouldn't be here right now. I would be fucking dead. But <laughs> we all would be. Um, but uh, yeah, I would have found the button and ended the world. Um, I. But I, I kind of buy it at the very least, as far as just him being an early punk in a neighborhood that doesn't see a lot of punks. Yeah. Like it's not implying that he's the first punk in New York. It's just that he's going back to Bensonhurst, and they're mm-hmm. like, what the fuck is this shit? Like, yeah, it's certainly a rational response, but it's the same sort of response people have, you know, to people who are different from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> which, oh, maybe that's something Spike Lee's into. Sure. Again, we have this, like, this uh, kind of queer subplot that doesn't really work. I think I think in general Spike Leash is better yeah. off when he's just pretending that gay people don't exist because when when they're in his movies they kind of well don't Michael, work well. Michael Imperioli in this <laughs> yeah Michael Imperioli as like the gay hustler yeah. strip club DJ is is really bad but also that's probably the one big thing I would dis- yeah I would say also it feels like there's a there's a slightly moralizing tone to it where like we're supposed to see Adrian Brody as tragic whereas. It doesn't seem like you don't get any impression from him. Hmm. Like maybe we're just supposed to accept that he's a straight man who is doing horrible gay things for money, but you don't get the impression from him that that is the case. You get the impression from him that he is maybe bisexual. Yeah. And that's, maybe that's true. is just like found a way to live his life where he's happy. And to me it's just really again, especially with how it ends, it, it, a lot of it's just about misplaced anger. Yeah. You know, and just, you know, these characters who feel like, well, clearly he must be the summer, you know, the, mm-hmm. the son of Sam because of how he looks and how he's acting. But they're also convinced and, that everyone else is the son of it's, it's all about yeah, this paranoia. Yeah, paranoia. And then the, yeah, of that time. And then the real son of Sam is basically a joke in this movie. It's just like fucking pentagrams everywhere and just blah, da, da. And then like the fucking dog walks up dog. and starts and, in John Turturro's voice. Oh, <laughs> Kill for me! Kill! <laughs> Look at that scene on YouTube. It's it's amazing in context and out. Yeah, yeah. No, I I won't argue that it's a mess. But like Bill Ackerman told me that what he appreciates a lot about Spike Lee is that he has a reckless sincerity. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what I love about it. Like it's that's a reckless. Good it's reckless, but it's very sincere in that. And, and every fear, character... I mean, yeah, yeah, that's all fearlessness. Yeah. You know, if he second-guessed himself, you would not make Summer of Sam. <laughs> you would make, I don't know, if you were making... If you were trying to make a movie about the excess of the 70s, and you had all these ideas, but you were like, oh, what if that's weird? What if that's off-putting? What if that, what if that doesn't work? What if, what if I'm totally out in the weeds here? Mm-hmm. Then you start hedging all of your bets, and then you've made blow. You know, you've made, like, a kind of middling whatever... Yeah. Look at seventies decadence that That's doesn't like really have anything to say. Whereas, like, yeah, Spike Lee totally fearless and totally believes in his own vision, 
even when that leads him down some fucking crazy places, like in 2004. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Summer of Sam is one of those movies. It's an audacious movie. It's very enjoyable. It's definitely overlong. It's definitely overlong. Yeah, that's, but that's what also, keeps it from being... It's also refreshing because it's the first time he's been really critical of his sort of traditional masculinity that he sort yeah. of... That the kind of traditional masculine look at the world that he gives out... Um, you know, puts out in all of his films. It's kind of bullshit. It's, it, it is bullshit, and it's the first part where he's kind of self-critical of that. Yeah. Now, Bamboozled. Bamboozled. When I first saw this, I hated it. Yeah. I remember not you being... You alone. I remember not being able to just get past that look. The, the Sony... Like, I think yeah. he was, was quoted as saying, like, I, he, he might have even gone to Best yeah, Buy. Yeah, he went just to Best Buy, he bought some mini DV cameras. Yeah. Uh, and he shot Bamboozled. And, and, he, I, and it was the first movie he shot, he edited with an Avid on a computer. I saw this in a theater, and I just... Uh, it felt so long and mm-hmm. ugly, and some of its jokes, like, Tarantino was right, fuck Spike Lee. I just... I rolled my eyes as opposed to laughing at it. Um, but I warmed up to it a little bit more. I, I still think it's very flawed, but... It's a satire. And I'm not quite sure what Damon Wayans is doing with his voice, with his vocal inflections here. He's trying to sound white. Yeah, I know, but it's... I know it's a satire, so it's exaggerated. It's a sketch comedy voice in a feature film yeah. is the problem. Yeah, that's it. If, that, if yeah, it was, hello, I am uh, whatever, Delacroix, and this is something talk. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was a In Living Color sketch where he was doing that voice, you wouldn't think twice about it. But as a feature film, you're like, why is David Wayans? What is happening? Yeah. But yeah, he's trying to talk white. That's what he's doing with that voice. No, I mean, like, parts of it are hysterical, but then I think, like, when it gets violent and it tries to really get serious about its subject matter towards the end, I just, I don't know. I have a disconnect with that. Tonally, I I love that he swings for the fences with this. And I think the Tarantino stuff is fucking, like... Like go go and watch some. I was I was I was watching some interviews and stuff where Spike Lee and Tarantino were talking about each other because I find them two fascinating figures because they both they're it's 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 the classic like we're not so different you and I like you yeah. can a fucking superhero movie where one of them is the villain and the other is the hero and they face off and they're just like the fucking mirror image of each other because they're just shameless self-promoters. That'd be so much better than Batman versus Superman. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, they're both shameless self-promoters who have completely carved out, and they're totally audacious filmmakers who without, who unapologetically make the movies they want to make. Um, they're so similar, and like you go and you watch some Tarantino interviews. Watch him on Sway in the Morning talking about Django Unchained, and watch him dropping his ends, man. You know, that's not what I'm saying. You know, like... Like, he fucking wants to be black. I don't agree with Spike Lee necessarily in his blanket dismissal of all of Tarantino's movies for their use of the N-word. I think there are instances in which he is thoughtful about that sort of thing. And I think he is thought- more thoughtful about race and Django and Chain than yeah. a lot of people give him credit for. Oh, yeah, I agree but with But, like, I absolutely think Quentin Tarantino wants to be black. And it makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> Or like, or in a in a Sal's Pizza kind of way, like he thinks he is like this be- benevolent sort of white figure for the black community. He's like, look what I'm doing for all you guys. Like, isn't yeah. that great? Like, there's and so like, there's a lot of anger, and it's not just at it's not just at directed at Tarantino. Obviously, this movie uh, this movie is about not blackface necessarily, but about minstrel 
uh, sort of antics or what Spike Lee likes to call uh, coonery buffoonery mm-hmm. um, about you know certain sitcoms on the WB and UPN and stuff like that that are just about these totally wacky negative stereotypes stereotypes about black characters and it's I I appreciate his, it's intense his but... anger gets me so so far number one number two. The actual structure of the movie itself is addressing – is not just about giving him a place to vent his anger. The movie is about addressing this question. How do these movies get – how do these shows get on the air? How do these movies get made? Why are the black people in front of the camera allowing this to happen? Why are the yeah. black writers behind the camera allowing this to happen? Why are the black producers allowing this to happen? Why are the black audiences watching it? This, I think Bamboozled tackles that question – so well. I think it says that hmm. that the entertainment community and and black people's place in the entertainment community is this sort of feedback loop of self-hatred where everyone is trying to better their career at the expense of the characters that they're depicting or the characters that they're writing or the shows that they're producing. And and because they're because they all want to be up there where the white people are, they all want to be in the place where they can make anything they want and not have to cater to black audiences or yeah. have to not to be in this ghettoized, you know, literally ghettoized sort of uh, uh, form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, did you see did you see Best Man's Club? Did you see or Best Man's Holiday? I don't think you know, so. Did you did 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 you see the Perfect Guy? Did you see uh, did you see the Idris Elba thriller? No, what's the, what's that one? Oh God, I forget the name of it, but it looks it looks pretty badass. <laughs> Where he's like this escaped convict, and he's like, "Let me use your phone," and then he like takes a family hostage in the house. Yeah, like, no, I mean, especially after doing a Tyler Perry episode, I can see why that anger is so yeah, absolutely, you know, prevalent and, and vital. I here. like the idea, like Oscar Delacroix. Is it Oscar? Yeah, this is his first uh, name. I, I keep think thinking of so. Oscar Michaud, who also has a French name, who is the actual like silent black filmmaker who mm-hmm. made a lot of like important movies. Yeah. Um, but uh, Delacroix in this movie, he thinks, well, I'm, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to show everyone else how silly they're being by going crazier. But then he gets addicted to success. You know, those actors, you know, there's the, the tap dancer. He doesn't think anything of himself. He wants, he wants that loot. He wants that. Yeah. loot. That's the phrase he keeps using. And like, it doesn't occur to him to, uh, it doesn't occur to him that like he should be reading. It doesn't occur to him that now that he is out of his current situation, he is surviving, that he should be trying to better himself as a human mm-hmm. because he doesn't think he can. And there, these performers on stage, they're, they're denigrating themselves, you know, uh, during the audition scenes and everything. Cause they all, they all think that that's what they need to do. That's what needs to happen. And so you see this failure on every level of it by these people and the various ways that self-hatred informs the way that they fuck up. And it is a mess. That fucking CGI Jolly N-Word bank, like, <laughs> dancing around, and, like, it is, it's a, it's a crazy movie. Yeah, and then Jada Pinkett Smith's character there is, she's always there as kind of like the voice of reason, like, why aren't you reading about this, or why aren't, you know, I, I like that, but then you know, she sort of decides, you know, I'm going to, present this montage at the very end and, you know, shoot, shoot him for what he's done. And I just kind of like, I don't know. It just, that whole thing rubs me the wrong yeah, way. Yeah. The ending, the end. I don't think the ending's very good. I wish the other it, thing about, the, I, yeah, the other thing about bamboozled. 
I mean, there's also just like the image of, uh, and I can't remember the actor's name, but tap dancing on Michael Rappaport's desk. Yeah. Like, there are moments like that that are just jaw dropping. Um, there, uh, I, th- there, it's, I think it also helps me get through it that it's a funny movie. I think it's, I personally, again, just think Spike Lee is very funny and, there's some really funny bits. I mean, yeah. some, the commercials in this are great. Like yeah, the yeah. bomb, the bomb shows Bob. up. The bomb shows up all over his filmography after this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the, um, Denzel Washington's good for nothing uh, brother-in-law sleeping on the couch at the end of Inside Man has has a bomb <laughs> on him. And yeah. in Chirac, they have the bomb uh, advertisements there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they have any uh, Tommy Hilniger anywhere. But <laughs> 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 that shit, that shit's funny too. Yeah, no, I, um, but, but I agree with how funny when. I, mean, I guess he's also commenting on the fact that Ving Rhames gave his, um, um, I think it was an Emmy, to uh, Jack Lemmon. Uh-huh. And having uh, Delacroix give his... <laughs> his <laughs> he, does, he does it. Matthew Modine. Yeah. It's like, you deserve this. I know. That shit, that shit is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like... Oh, God. that So that... It's. I think it's a funny movie. I love Paul Mooney. I love just like watching Paul Mooney to Santa in it. It's. A, sure. I think it's a totally a mess. I think the. I think I've. I have grown a certain respect and um, appreciation of lo-fi digital filmmaking. I think probably because like hmm. professional digital filmmaking is often so very ugly to me that I like it when I can tell something's digital. I think that's how it's finally turned me around to like Michael Mann movies and stuff. Is oh, that that's interesting when shit is just like post production, recolored and retouched, and everything looks fake to me, hmm. and it looks too shiny and too vivid and everything like that. I hate how that looks. So when something is just a thirty frames per second video file, like super grainy very obviously consumer grade digital video. I almost like respect that more and I, I find it more compelling and aesthetic. I can't wait to hear your review of public enemies. Cause yeah. that's one that I completely dislike based on its aesthetics. Yeah. I mean, I've heard, I've heard it's also bad for other reasons, but uh, I think so. If I recall, I just remember like why that choice? Why? I also read, an, <laughs> I, I read an interview with Michael Mann where he said that the lab that processed, cause Public Enemies was made at a time where still most movie theaters were projecting film prints, and the lab that made the film prints based on the digital master did something where it didn't look like it should have. And he said that the actual digital master of the movie, like if you watch the Blu-ray, you're seeing something that looks better than what people saw in theaters. Oh, interesting. Because the film prints of that digital – I don't understand – and there's still people who make film prints of digital of digital movies that weirds me out. I saw Mad Max Fury Road as a midnight movie on 35 millimeter. I I was baffled <laughs> as to why that even existed. But I guess there's like one theater in West Virginia that still plays Hollywood movies that never up- updated their projectors, so they get the digi- they get yeah. the celluloid copy of Mad Max Fury Road, one of the most digital looking movies of all time. Um, interesting, interesting. But uh, at any rate. I so I don't I don't mind the look of Bamboozled so much, especially when it switches to the uh, film for oh, yeah. the show. No, that's, that's and I think great. the show I think like the I think they're doing genuine um, vaudeville uh, sort of uh, sketches and stuff when you're seeing the actual clips of the show. And I don't know, like Tommy Davidson's funny, and it kind of makes you if you I kind of like like watching those sketches. And it makes you conflicted because it shows you how 
how easy it is to look past something that is so heinous, right? If you think something is funny, you know, there. That's an interesting point. That, I think that's very that's true of a lot of comedians. Uh, is that they are so talented that you can for, that you cannot be critical about the things they're saying and the characters they're depicting, and you can like I think Tyler Perry is a very funny actor, and. He's I, great in there's, Gone Girl. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, he's very funny in Gone Girl. But yeah. like, there's moments in Tyler Perry movies. I think he's hysterical, and you forget for a moment just how horrible everything is <laughs> because he's funny. And I think that those sequences are good at displaying that. Though again, like, they're old vaudeville sketches, so they're not necessarily like hip modern things. But mm-hmm. I mean, and then there's also a contingent of academic. You know, most people don't think about blackface because they don't aren't really aware that it existed or whatever. There is a contingent of academic that says that blackface as it existed in the 1800s and the early 1900s was a positive force for integration was, it was the first time Hmm. a lot of uh, whites were seeing black characters in any situation at all. And in being comic characters, you know, even if you are laughing at them, you are empathizing with them in some way. So there are, there's some academic schools of thought that even disagree with the thesis that blackface was a horrific shame. Hmm. Um, that's really interesting. And, that's an interesting spin on and something. That's, and it's not just that. You know, you could you look at the Marx Brothers and see the Marx Brothers as being this like super uh, sort of stereotypical immigrants. You know, but they're also immigrants who are raging against the system and like ruining all these white nice white people's parties. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like Chico is a is a blatant Italian stereotype. He's a Jewish man performing a crazy Italian stereotype. Yeah, but like in. In putting on that stereotype, you empathize with him more than you empathize with Margaret Dumont. It's to say, like, uh, comic strips. The birth of comic strips was – that was an immigrant art form. So, like, the, the, the dialogue in early comic strips was, was a lot rougher and, you know, a lot of sure, apostrophes yeah. and stuff and a lot of pidgin English and stuff like that. Like, there is a contingent of thought that blackface is part of this sort of tradition of assimilation via uh, self-critical – mockery and that's not you know i personally i'm not an academic i haven't done a lot of research on this i probably am way more on spike lee's side of things as far as that goes but there is a contingent of people who who hated bamboozled because he conflated blackface with offensive portrayals uh like yeah he conflated two separate things mm-hmm. um so that's that's something about this movie that but i don't i don't i even think like ebert was uncomfortable with the idea of using blackface for even just a satirical purpose. Like he found it just the, sh- the sight of it uh-huh. is so jarring and it brings up such like discomfort. And it should, it should that it's really hard to even accept the movie as a comedy when that exists in of itself. And that's an interesting idea of like that image alone. It's hard for me to separate my own re- emotional response to enjoy this movie that as a satire. Is, I mean, it is part of why that movie is not as funny as it could be. It's part of why that movie is not as successful as satire as it could be. But it's also part of why I love that movie is because it's absolutely fearless. Yeah. In that way. Like, I, I it, agree. It will rub your fucking face in it. It is not, it is not a Hollywood shuffle where... It's like, oh, I gotta play the drug addict, and it's and the what? What is the end message of Hollywood Shuffle? There's always work at the post office. <laughs> yeah, that's not burn Hollywood burn. That's oh well, that's the way things are. Let's 
let's not let's not even dignify that with a response. That's you know that's Robert Townsend, and it's also not as funny, unfortunately. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I remember seeing it again. I, I was used like, to what? I used to love Hollywood Shuffle. I know, me too. It's weird. Like, the I parts a of it that feel like proto and living color sketches still yeah. work for me. But yeah, yeah, and Batty 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 still makes me laugh. Hey Patrick, <laughs> the stupid sitcom. Patrick, yeah. guess what? What you you mentioned the word fearless? Yeah. Okay, so, uh, well, we've now concluded Spike Lee. We're going to be talking about Peter Weir for the... <laughs> well, a movie that almost affects me just as much, if not more so, is 25th Hour. Mm. Mm, this movie. This is a movie, Patrick. So there is... So in my <laughs> mind, so in my mind, there are two halves at this point. Not everyone has a three-act life. At this point, there are two acts to Spike Lee's career. There is pre... 25th hour and post 25th hour because Spike Lee had made two bona fide fucking die in the wool masterpieces with do the right thing and Malcolm X. But he had also just sort of continued to make kind of Spike Lee movies with lessering effect and with less acclaim and with less box office. And he, it started to feel like, well, Spike Lee was done. Spike Lee, the director, he can shock us with bamboozled. He can make interesting films, but his peak has passed. Um, and then 25th hour kind of redefines that because 25th hour sort of implies at any moment, Spike Lee could step into a project that he didn't originate. Yeah. And make a fucking masterpiece. I'll never forget where I was when I first saw this movie and my response. And cause I am not the type to tell just, that story. I'm not the type to just react out loud in such a, like, a visceral response to something to where like people look at me and like I almost feel embarrassed for having that response. And that's the mirror sequence in this, to me, summed up everything people were feeling be- as a result of 9-11 and just feeling constant prejudice and constant paranoia and like that faction of people over there is like... And it's so summed up beautifully in that entire sequence, which, you know, I, I figured that's Spike Lee, 100% Spike Lee. And it turns out it was in the book. And I was just, you know, I found that out. I found that shocking in of itself. But I was sitting in a room full of stuffy film critics who some of them were taking notes. Um, and when that mirror sequence happened, I, I couldn't help but stand up and applaud because of its audacity, because of its fearlessness, because of, again, that reckless sincerity to actually go all out and sum up what a lot of people feel. And the fact that he even does, like, you know, slavery ended, get over it. Something, like, I didn't think would come out of Spike Lee's mouth at all is here in a moment that says a lot about America. It says a lot about this particular character who's just, like, full of self-loathing, but also wanting to project all that self-loathing onto other people. Um, but it's one, this movie is just like such... When you stood an, up and applauded, did everyone else like sort of give you a side eye? or were, Yeah. Yeah, they, <laughs> all thought, they all thought it was weird. And then did you sheepishly kind of like lower your seat mm-hmm. like comically? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, sorry guys. Ebert's I couldn't like, help it. Ebert misses like part of the movie because you fucking stood up in front of him. I don't know if Ebert was there. No. But Michael Wilmington did. I'll never forget that. Michael Wilmington, the Chicago Tribune. Um, Eric was Eric Childress was actually sitting next to me and, you know, he's like, calm down. No. <laughs> but I, I, yeah. And I still have... Like, from beginning to end, 
a, a powerful reaction to almost everything in this movie because I associate 9-11 with a lot of things, obviously with the event itself, but just my father passed away. And I'd say from the moment that Monty comes home after being beat up and is just lying on the couch and starts crying and then his dad comes to pick him up, I'm just gone. Like, I'm sobbing uncontrollably through pretty much the entire duration of this movie. Um, I think... I think Barry Pepper is so fucking good in this movie. Like, mm-hmm. almost in one scene, it's sort of some stuff like what Wolf of Wall Street did in three hours with just like what it is to what it's like to work in that environment on Wall Street. Um, and you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman does Philip Seymour Hoffman the the, the sad sack really beautifully here. Um, I want more films like this. Period. I want more filmmakers to kind of have the balls that Spike Lee has to simply just dive right into all these conflicting feelings that were happening at, at that time. Um, because like originally he was just going to adapt this novel because he felt it was almost going to be kind of like a clocker situation. He was just going to adapt a novel. But then after what happened in New York, he could not shy away from that, even though pretty much the rest of Hollywood was shying away from it to where, Oh, collateral damage has the, you know the, the the World Trade Center. In it. We can't release that movie, uh, you know, for a while. Yeah, yeah. But Spike Lee's like, fuck that. Remove all the promos where Spider Man's in between the two towers. Yeah, yeah. And let's remove him out of Zoolander. But um, yeah. I this this is just one of the more powerful emotional experiences of my lifetime. Is this movie? I I and I just love everything. It's it's kind of a crazy because the the book was released January two thousand one. So it's kind of, and it was already being, yeah, like you said, it was already being adapted, and it's, I don't think this movie would be, (laughs) it does not justify (laughs) 9-11. I will just say this movie would not be as good if 9-11 never happened. And the score here, like, normally I'd find it kind of questionable and trying to um, evoke an emotional re- response from its audience. Well, it like, feels like a Spike Lee score. It's yeah. sort of this mournful it's horn very, section. It's very memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just the opening credits, the uh, the spotlights and all that stuff. Like, I, I don't know, man. And even just... The sound of the dog over the Touchstone logo? Yeah. And to me, like, the dog kind of just represents a lot of us at that time. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's, again, like a movie about empathy. Uh, it's a movie to like even just specific scenes of guys hanging out and having conversations. I find very genuine. Um, you know that the scene where they're looking outside of Barry Pepper's apartment out the window. That's and that's all done in one take and one shot. It's just that's that conversation they have is is fantastic. So I mean, I can't. I, yeah. it's, hard, <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine this movie. Like to me, so much of what this movie is is about 9-11, but also in a way that it would only have made sense if Spike Lee made it in 2009 instead of 2000, <laughs> 2000 2002. Yeah. Because this is a film where it's... So, he's going away for seven years. That's how many years we had left with Bush. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start now this whole fucking thing where it's like George W. Bush. That's 14 letters. Now, that's also 14 letters in Taliban lies. Uh-oh, so what? Theory. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to fucking Back go. to the Future predicted 9-11. No, but like, this is just the only way I can watch this movie now. And it's, you know, it's set up in the opening credits uh, as that movie. You know, it's the choice he made. But like, 
I. Mm. <laughs> so there, he's going away for seven years. That's how long we were. That's that's how long we were stuck with Bush. Uh, he has the right. He has the aggressive right wing on his right, and he has the ineffectual liberals on his left. <laughs> um, it's. It's not like a strict allegory. Everyone, like, Anna Paquin represents Kenneth Starr. Like, no, I don't know. Fucking, oh, jeez. <laughs> but um, let's not go there. Yeah, Ugh. but uh, but um, it's not you know, it's not a direct allegory or anything. But like, just the way I watch this, it feels like an elegy for an America that could have been, especially that ending and that, <laughs> which is the, the clockers ending. It like, is Spike or Lee raising con- Arizona. Spike Lee constantly <laughs> quotes himself. What has how does raising Arizona end? Well, just like Nicolas Cage picturing his life years down the road as like an old man. With oh, his, really? Yeah, with Holly Hunter and stuff. Yeah. I was always thinking of it as the thing that Harvey Keitel is saying to strike, you know, that right too. before he gets him on the train. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I don't know. But whatever. Uh, fuck it. I'll just say it. Uh, I don't think America is a good place, and I think America is only going to get worse until it collapses. And I don't know if America ever was a good place, but I think that the terrorists absolutely 100% won because 9-11 ensured that it never would be. It It is like the hot... It, 9-11 was the hottest day in Do the Right Thing where there is all of this shit under the surface that could have worked, that maybe could have gone the other way, that maybe we could have gotten our shit together mm-hmm. and become a good people. But actually, uh, an outside source... It, I mean, we didn't cause uh, debatable. We didn't cause nine eleven. <laughs> I don't even I get don't into. Know. I don't want to even get into all that. Not even. Well, not. Let's not, get Alex Jones on the show. No, no, not, not in that way. But in the way that we create Islamic extremists by whatever. I'm not even getting even into that. But um, I think that has set us down to the path where now Trump is a serious contender for the president of the United States <laughs> oh, of America, God. and that is all. That all ties back to uh, hatred and xenophobia. And American exceptionalism and everything that was all spurned on by 9-11. And it feels like there's this other path we could have gone. We could have we could have been a nice country. <laughs> and like that whole ending where he's thinking about the life he could have had, it, it I just I just fucking weep. Because that's oh, that's, know, just, that's right? just what it means to me is like it could have gone the other way. It feels like maybe it could have gone the other way. But now like Barack Obama has been at war longer than any American president in history, and we'll probably just be at war for the rest of our history as a nation. Like, yeah. it's, it's fucking tragic. And I don't know, like, I'm, I'm sorry to get political, especially because I'm not an informed person. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I'm not, I, 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 have a lot of, I have a lot of anger and anxiety, but I don't have a lot of actual fucking facts. So you could be rolling your eyes at home, and that's fine. But, like, that that's what this movie <laughs> means to me. And also, it's like a perfect character study and it's just a perfect script it's a perfect story um, perfect acting from everybody yeah yeah everyone everyone is fantastic um it was interesting that as you were you were talking about your thoughts on america that the sunshine went away for a while oh yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> i was I, like I, yeah. the, why the room gets so dark as because, you're saying all this because god agreed with me and the <laughs> sun just went behind a cloud and i'm so lonesome i could cry yeah <laughs> pretty much <laughs> um but i, I you know I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. You know, I'm. I, I, it's tough for me because I. I think of that. Maybe that final montage, and I agree with your sentiments about America in general. To me, it really is because of how strongly I associate 9/11 with the loss of my dad. I. Um. I think of that ending as 
what life could have been if he'd still been around, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why that movie um, really affects me. Uh, I so. have a question about, <laughs> just about the movie itself. Mm. Um, do you think there's any ambiguity in, in the ending? No. He went to prison. Yes. Okay. I absolutely 100% agree. I know people were having that question of like, did his father stay on the expressway or did he not turn off to... Yeah, like, I don't even think it's implying ambiguity. Yeah. I just think it is... I think I just think it would be too cruel to cut away from the from the mm-hmm. fantasy. Yeah. I think it lets him have that fantasy as like but I don't yeah, I don't think there's any ambiguity he went to prison. 100%. If true. he doesn't go to prison, that movie is meaningless. Yeah, I just like even just the the the, the slow, you know, uh dolly shot of all the people as he's driving away. It's like in real life, they would not be smiling at this bruised up oh, guy no, yeah, in the no, car, it's, but it's so it goes uh, it, yeah it, it, it sort it's of, like it's a, pretty, it's a it's not a it's not a super flashy Spike Lee movie um, other than the mirror scene, but it is but like it definitely dips more into uh, that surreal expressionist sort of yeah, thing yeah, yeah towards yeah. the end there. Um, I didn't see She Hate Me. She Hate Me is a terrible film. Oh, okay. Uh, let me tell you about. Let's like going from one extreme to another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She Hate Me is fucking garbage. Um, she hate, I'll just say this. She Hate Me is like Jungle Fever where there are two subplots that aren't really connected. Uh-oh. They just happen to have a character in both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, except, and they feel like two separate things that Spike Lee, for some reason, had to do. Um, and they're both, but in this case, they're both totally inane and worthless. One is he's very angry about corporate fraud. He's very angry about WorldCom, you know, Enron. Enron, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like... The the uh, the eight seconds of of speech time that he gives Edward Norton on that subject is much better than any than the entire two plus hours of She Hate Me. So that's one side. That's a boring, boring movie about corporate fraud and about a whistleblower getting fired or whatever. Like boring ass movie. There's no intrigue. There's nothing. There's nothing there. Stupid. On the other hand, there is a totally monstrously offensive sex comedy about a man who is fathering les- babies for, by lesbians. Huh. It is... I, 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 told, I was talking to a customer that I've been watching a lot of Spike Lee movies and talking to him about, about this podcast, and he goes, have you watched She Hate Me yet? And I go, no, it's on the list. I, I'm, I'm dreading it. He goes, he goes, you almost can't call it offensive because it feels like Spike Lee doesn't... Like, a, like it's, not, it's not that he has... It's it's almost like an it would be like calling an alien offensive. <laughs> okay. It's like it's not that he grossly depicts how lesbians are inaccurately. It's that he doesn't seem to know what the dictionary definition of lesbian is. Hmm. Cuz all of these lesbians when they're getting impregnated instead of getting artificial insemination, they all fuck him and they're all fucking loving fucking this guy. Okay, that seems entirely inaccurate to me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's fucking... like the predatory lesbian character, and she's got to have it. Yeah, no, they're and they're like that too, where they're like, "Yeah, give me that dick," and he's like, "Please," because also they all decide to do this on a single <laughs> night. I don't know if I don't even know if he knows the biology of like, yeah, you're not going to impregnate seven women on one night. <laughs> you gotta like, <laughs> you, you might impregnate one woman on one try, but you're not going to impregnate seven women. On uh, the first try, and then like, oh my god! But they're all like, "Yeah, it's too late. You better give it to me." Uh, it's like, ugh, it's fucking gar. Like, it's fucking yeah. Like, it would be offensive if it had any. It's the way that like trauma movies are the most offensive thing ever, except that they're the least serious thing ever, mm-hmm. and you don't think like 
it's hard to think of them as a serious threat <laughs> to to in, in terms of like the general culture. Like they don't they don't they wouldn't do as much damage as like one season of two and a half men <laughs> in terms of negative uh, views of women or whatever. But like it's like this that. This is making me more depressed about America right yeah, now. Yeah, she hate me she hate me's the worst, so we can skip that. Um and we can briefly get through Inside Man. Because it's, a good, it's a good thrill. It's it's it is. it's taking a Pelham one, two, three for the post nine eleven era. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. I enjoy it. Denzel. Denzel being a ho- being a movie star. It's the first yeah. first Spike Lee movie where Denzel got to be a movie star. Never really talked about Segway shots, but I love them. <laughs> I know there's like one, them? There's Segway, one in the here. Yeah, I like those. I like those shots. Is, are you calling them that because they have the appearance of someone riding on a Segway? Yeah. Okay. I don't know what he calls them. I don't either. I think you know it's funny. Because I mean, I, anyone listening who knows the first thing about Spike Lee, they know the kind of shot we're talking about, where yeah. the person is not moving, but the scenery all around them is moving. Right. I think. Well, obviously, it happens in Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets when Harvey Keitel is drunk. I know there's a term for it, a, a type of camera that they strap onto themselves. No, that's that's a different thing. Oh, okay. That's like what Darren Aronofsky does in yeah. Pie and uh, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, and yeah, this, yeah. they're not wearing the camera, they're riding the camera. Right, okay, okay. It has Because it doesn't have the motion of their walking. Right. It has that gliding thing. Yeah. Okay. Like they're on a Segway. Yeah, yeah, like they're on a Segway. <laughs> anyway, yeah, good Segway shot in yeah. Man. Yeah, definitely. It's a fun movie. A lot of fun. Kind of innocuous, but it's a heist movie. You know, I, 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 I enjoy a good heist movie. Highly enjoyable. Again, weirdly sexist. <laughs> yeah. Jody the weird scene. The, not necessarily Jodie Foster's character. I was thinking about the weird it's interrogation scene where they're just like staring at the woman's tits the whole, the whole interview. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's the way you remember a woman, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway. Anyway, Inside Man's cool. What's next? Yeah, and, uh, you know, Passing Strange, I talked about that very briefly. And uh, It's, it's a more Broadway a, musical that he filmed. Yeah. The camera movements and compositions really immerse the viewer uh, in the story and also in just the power of a live performance that emphasizes kind of the play's artifice, but it's also really responsive to the emotion of the story that's taken place. And it's a, it's a straight autobiography of this musician's search for identity, despite being black, despite having insecurities, um, and trying out different identities throughout his life. You know, from, from a young um, high school graduate, he decides to move to Europe and adopts, like, different... Like, first he goes to Amsterdam and falls in with a certain crowd so he adopts that sort of identity there then he goes to berlin and there's these like you know uh sort of fascist factions that he identifies with there so it's really like you know sort of this chameleon story he just like goes from group to group to group to group and finds he's trying to find people's vulnerability he's trying he's in search for the real in people and in art and I, he finds that eventually with just musical expression and he does that in different settings and there's different genres of music being portrayed here so i just love this story i love how spike lee is interest like i mean it's a lot of fast editing a lot of different camera work but it really just the whole movie got to me because eventually he sort of discovers in kind of a sad way that he's trying to fill the void of his life with music and with song and with art that theme right here 
<laughs> like that's just me. I love that. Um, but again, the energy is on display, and the fact that it's you know very autobiographical, and the guy who wrote this play is there on stage, you know, playing music along with the entire band. It's just oh my god, is it infectious? It's just so. It's and again, it's like maybe over two hours, but it doesn't feel like it at uh, all. We ha- we do have that at the store. I'll have to check love that out. it. Um, spe- though speaking of you know, Spike Lee didn't write that. That was sort of a work for hire thing. Yeah. Speaking of that, Kings of Comedy. Is a oh, right. concert comedy film that Spike Lee that Spike Lee shot. Yeah, that is the absolute end of it. That is not his movie. That is much like Old Boy. That is which we can movies. skip over too. <laughs> uh, yeah, Old Boy. Old Why? Boy. There's no need to. Yeah, we, it. we can get to Old Boy when we get to Old Boy. But well, I haven't seen Red Hook Summer. So do you have that? You haven't seen Red Hook Summer? No, it's a mess. Oh, it's so the main problem with Red Hook Summer is the two child actors who are the leads are kind of bad, mm-hmm. and it's sort of it's sort of this. The part in Crooklyn where she goes to visit her uh, her aunt in Atlanta. Oh, okay. It's except reversed, so it's a boy from Atlanta going to stay with his preacher uh, grandfather in um, Red Hook, Brooklyn, and you know he meets the pe- local people, and it's that it's that weird thing that I don't know if this is how kids these days are, or if this is how adults think kids these days are. But I've seen this in a couple things where it's like, I'm going to be a filmmaker when I grow up. And does that mean he's making films? No, it means he just records everything. He just records every interaction like a fucking, like, monster, like a weird robot or something. Hmm. He just is constantly holding up his iPad to people and recording them. That's awkward. And so, like, he gets in, you know, he, he, he does a little bit of that and he's, like, meeting all the people of Red Hook, Brooklyn. And then there's, like, this sort of last minute plot twist at the end where his very uh, pious sort of preacher fa- grandfather while at a service um, a, a man comes forward and accuses him of molesting him as a child and it sort of turns into a different thing. It's a mess. I don't, I don't recommend it. Hmm, um, that's too bad. Because it was like touted as kind of like a spiritual sequel to Do the Right Thing, right? No. Oh, I thought it was. I, well, maybe on the most surface level it takes place in Brooklyn and Mookie is in it. Oh, for a brief okay. period. This is this is the this is the full extent. I'll go ahead. I uh, I memorized all of all of uh, Spike Lee's lines in Red Hook Summer. So here it is. Um, so, uh, so okay. So you feed me the line. You say, "Come to come to the church service on Sunday." Come to the church service on Sunday. Hail to the naw. <laughs> what? All right, and then say, "Are you still working at Sal's Pizza?" Are you still working at Sal's Pizza? Gotta get paid. That's All right, it. and then um, this is now. This is the next scene he's in. Now he's walking by again. Now you say, "Are you going to come to Old Timers Day? Are you going to come to Old Timers Day?" Hell to the nah! All right, so I've now performed all of Mookie's scenes. <laughs> it's totally useless. It's Yikes. just like a fun little Easter egg, I guess, for people. The only thing that you can say about Red Hook Summer is something we haven't addressed yet: is that Spike Lee has an interesting and complicated relationship with religion. Oh yeah, because obviously the yet. most I think the most inspirational religious story of all time is the autobiography of Malcolm X. But at the same time, um, you know, he's very critical of the structures that uh, you know that protected molesting priests. He is critical of the way that religion has been used to um, sort of pacify uh, African Americans and. It's it's uh, later on, and um, I don't I don't know exactly where if there's a movie in between there yet. But like when you're getting to the, the sweet blood of Jesus, uh, religion is oh, seen as as an addiction. <laughs> yeah, religion is is a, a, compared to an addiction, like a lot of things sure, are, sure. are compared to addictions. And um, so 
he has an interesting relationship because he is he has said that he believes in God, he believes in a higher power, but he didn't, you know, he was raised in New York, he didn't have to go to church every Sunday. He only went to church regularly when he was in, you know, spending summers in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um and obviously there are good things that can come from religion because Malcolm X is that story uh, about a man being totally saved and transformed into a very powerful and important person through religion. On the other hand, you know, he is skeptical and I think he has an interesting relationship because I think, I think, I think the, I think the black community has an interesting relationship with religion um, that is kind of complicated. Yeah. No, I, I, I would agree with that. That's an interesting, uh, it's particularly interesting Western, point. particularly Western religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say, because yeah. there's there's all sorts of African religions, and there you know there's Islam, there's other religions you know that were not uh, colonialized and uh, forced on uh, black people, but that right. the way that Christianity was. So, at any rate, uh, Red Hook Summer is sort of the most obvious example of that dynamic, but it's not a good movie, so I wouldn't recommend it. And I wouldn't recommend his remake of Old Boy. It's uh, the only thing you can say about Old Boy is I, I've sort of come to realize I don't like Old Boy as much as I thought I did the original. Um, I think I I think the only reason you really watch it is because and I can't remember the actor's name, but the lead character, the lead actor in Old Boy, is fucking jaw dropping, incredible, feral human performance that you yeah. just can't take your eyes off of, um, and because. It consistently does. You consistently don't know where it's going. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I mean, obviously, once you've seen the movie, you know where it's going. But like, on a moment-to-moment basis, it's constantly throwing new things at you. So, a remake of Old Boy before you get anyone involved, it just feels like the singularly most bad idea. Right. And Josh Brolin is not that performer. Nope. The only thing I can say about Spike Lee's remake is that the ending is better than the original. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but it's he, very, it's he very also didn't write it. He also didn't write write the remake of Old Boy. This is a very strictly for hire job. Yeah, unlike the Sweet Blood of Jesus, he, he I, kickstarted. I, I, I donated. Yeah, he kickstarted. That. Right. I donated that. I'm not. I'm not in the credits. I didn't donate. I didn't have that Why much not? money. But you should be. I didn't have that much money, but I got some emails. <laughs> <laughs> I've donated five dollars to a couple movies. Yeah, I know it's a remake, and it's a remake of Kanjen Hess. Kanjen Hess. Yeah. 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 Um, which I have not seen, but I'm curious to see it. It played at the, it played at a massacre, but I was passing out at the time, so I saw five minutes of it. Oh, okay. And uh, Dwayne Dwayne Jones, the lead actor from Night Living Dead, yeah, he's in it, and he has a beard, and he looks very handsome in a beard, and that's the full oh, that's, good. that's the full takeaway I got from my nine mi- nine minutes <laughs> conscious watching uh, Ganjin Hess uh, in a movie theater. But uh, to sweet blood of Jesus makes the maybe the worst. Crime uh, a Spike Lee movie can commit it it's and that boring. it's boring. Yeah. yeah, I know. I was shocked by that. Actually, I was like, "Wow, where's the pacing and pulse?" Like you kind of know what it's where it's going in the first ten minutes, mm-hmm. and it's metaphor, and it's- it keeps going and going and going and going and. Yeah. Has a cool has a cool ending shot. <laughs> yeah, I like that. You start you start looking for places. It goes some like fucked up weird dark places. Like mm-hmm. he fucking kills the woman, kills her own baby. Yeah. Uh, for its blood, it's a, it's a, it's sort of a vampire, not quite vampire, sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the original film, Ganjin Hess, was by an experimental director writer. He did a lot of it was his only film, but he did many. You know, huh. he wrote he wrote plays. He wrote, uh, I believe, fiction, and it is 
this is all secondhand because again, I saw the five minutes of it where I saw that Dwayne Jones looked good in a beard. But uh, he said, uh, "What? What I from what I understand, it is about a sort of skepticism and and fear of assimilation into white culture. Hmm. The idea of the what the actual likelihood of that is. The idea of um, what." What what uh, black people are losing by assimilating the idea of what those cultures are, you know, what the practical realities of it. I don't really see a lot of that in just sweep blood of Jesus. I think. Yeah, I don't know what, I it don't, gets swept under the rug. Yeah, and it's also kind of ugly looking. Yeah, I thought so too. I was surprised by that as well. I was. Just I mean, he didn't like, have a lot of money. That's yeah. probably just it. He didn't have a lot of money. He just shot quick and cheap. Right. Uh, yeah, it felt like an afterthought. Like it was just a movie that he did just to fill the time, but it wasn't like a passion project. That's that said, if he can use Kickstarter to just like, if 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 there comes a point where he can no longer get funding for movies. By the way, we skipped uh, when the levees break. When the levees broke. Oh, that's right. I want to talk about when the levees broke because that. So, do the right thing is a great film. How will it be viewed forty years from now? No one knows. Like, Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm X will be read forever. That movie, I don't know how many people are going to be watching it 40 years from now. Like, I think When the Levees Broke might actually be the most important Spike Lee movie ever just by the idea of, like, it is an absolutely vital document of the one of the most important events of the 21st century, American events of the 21st century. and like The the, failing of a system. Right. And it is... Absolutely comprehensive, but it's also again, he interviews so many people and he gets their their life and their vitality and he gets their their pain, but it's but also what the joy of New Orleans was and all the problems that go with it, and mm-hmm. it is it is what four hours. It's a mini series, so essentially, yeah. But um, I think that movie will just be a lasting, important document. Uh, for historical sake, at the very least, I in a way so. that not necessarily you couldn't necessarily guarantee his other movies would be, and it also just opened up an avenue because it was a huge deal when it came out. Mm-hmm. It was a big movie; everyone was talking about it. Um, it really did well for HBO, and then that guaranteed that Spike Lee can work for the rest of his life making documentaries. And he's continued to sporadically make documentaries since when the levees broke. Yeah, I, I think that alone warrants a Spike Lee episode two at some point yeah. part two because it's something we should expand on further but don't have the time to do I, but i mean on the other hand i think when the levees broke is an incredible film i it's hard to talk about i don't think he is as interesting a documentary filmmaker as he is a fictional filmmaker yeah i mean like i said about four little girls i think it has its strengths and that yeah. he doesn't just necessarily make it a talking heads boring no camera. no I think, I think he does a good job um and there's interesting things in the when Levy breaks as far as where he interviews people and stuff like that. Sure, yeah. But um, I think I don't know if I could do a whole other episode about just his documentaries. Well, yeah, I know. I mean, I th- there's certain movies that are hard to expand on in a sh- certain span of time because it's such a large filmography that's so interesting to talk about, and we wanna we wanna end on a on a, on a high note, sort of speak. But let's let's briefly talk about. Um, Chirac. So, Chirac. First thing, <laughs> first thing you need to know about Chirac is it's not about Chicago. That is how he got that movie made. And I walked in hoping it would be? Yes, absolutely. So did I. It is not about Chicago. 
Yeah. It is a script he had long before. Oh, really? Yeah. It was a script he could not get made. Hmm. <laughs> it's not hard to see why. It is fucking nuts. Here's the thing about Chirac. I like Chirac. I don't think it's a great movie. I don't think it's a very successful movie. I really like Chirac because it feels like the kind of movie that the entire film industry is in place to avoid from happening. It feels like the kind of... I don't know how much it actually costs to make, but it has a very big scope. It looks beautiful. It has so much location shooting. It feels like a big movie. It's a fucking crazy sex comedy and rhyming verse like is a greek sex comedy and rhyming verse about gun violence about urban gun violence what What? (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of my that's what i that's how i felt when i walked out yeah but i mean when i was hoping to get more i'm so happy that he can still do that and sure I, i don't think it works as well as bamboozled i like I am totally fine with the idea that he will never make a movie as good as 25th Hour or, or right Malcolm thing. X or Do the Right Thing again. Um, or even, like, Crooklyn again. Um, I'm totally fine with that idea because I, what I, what I, when I say someone is my favorite filmmaker, it is not the filmmaker that I think has made the most masterpieces. It is not the filmmaker who has the highest batting average. Uh, it is... When I, someone is my favorite filmmaker, it means I like the way they make movies. And whether it's a good movie or a bad movie, I love watching their movies. Um, and I just love getting that Spike Lee feeling. And I'm glad he was able to make Chirac. Uh, I mean, he had to go through a new system. It's an Amazon Studios. It was their first theatrical film. Yeah, that's right, film. yeah. So, like, it was literally... <laughs> no actual studio would touch it, but Amazon was like, mm-hmm. well, we want to get auteurs on our side. You know, they're trying to get, they got like Whit Stillman to make a TV series, Woody Allen to do a TV. Like, they're trying to have big name things to rival Netflix and stuff yeah, like I that. Yeah, I think Nic- Nicholas Winding Refn's next movie is through Amazon Studios. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, that is definitely what their goal is. They're, be- they're trying to get these auteur audacious projects made, and he just. He was, he was just like, yeah, in the right place at the right time, he got to make this fucking movie, and God bless him. Yeah. I mean, it's a, another satire that I guess is, like, I like the idea of satirizing, like, hyper-masculinity and how it can lead to violence, but it also, I don't know, I think just tonally, again, much like how I feel about Bamboozled, it, it rubs me the wrong way to go from... You know, a sex comedy essentially um, to an indictment or just getting really serious towards the end and having a character and having Jennifer Hudson pretty much just cry for the whole movie. I mean, she she went through this shit right herself personally, and her character is an afterthought here that just cries. And I feel like not everything here was fully realized enough for it to work no. cohesively as a whole. It's, um, it, number one, like, it feels like something that was, I mean, I'm not saying that gang violence, that black on black violence in Chicago South and West Sides is not, like, a huge issue, but it also feels, like, nationally, like, a little muddled because it is, because it came out, like, by the time they actually started, like, making this movie, the actual, the real, talk was black lives matter 
it was about police brutality, you know, like that was what the national yeah. conversation about, uh, about violence against black people was. It was, it was that. And so he tries to like fit that in. Mm-hmm. It's not the yeah. same thing. Hello. <laughs> They're coming to get us. No, I think that's the fire department. You're all, you're all cool fire department. Yeah. I Until mean, you let the hoses on people. You're okay by me. Um, but gang violence is an issue, obviously, yeah, but, yeah. It, but, but, but it's, it's so like he tries to like conflate the two things. Yeah. Um, it's it's a mess. It doesn't make any sense. It's it's kind of garbage, except that it's gloriously, magnificently, like it's beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. I think it's a gorgeous looking movie. Oh yeah, I think it is absolutely out of its mind and audacious. I think Sam Jackson as the narrator Lots is of fun, totally great. Um, I think some of the I think some of the sex comedy stuff is pretty funny. Yeah, the whole, scene, the whole scene in the strip club with Dave Chappelle. Oh yeah, we got Dave Chappelle back on the silver screen. Yeah, that made me very happy. Like, oh man, there's probably like there's probably 50 better movies that Dave Chappelle turned down before he decided to be in Chirac. But you know what? Like that's just that just goes to show what a crazy fucking movie this is. That it's like this is the one that Dave Chappelle was in. You know? She. Yeah, yeah Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah Washington. I actually I didn't do the research I wanted to. I was trying to look up. So. When Isaiah character? Washington in 25th Hour says she, I don't... Was that the first... I don't know if that was before The Wire. I wouldn't think so. That's just a guess, though. Because The Wire started around, like, 2002. 2002. Yeah. So it might have... I don't know if it originated there. It originated with Isaiah Washington. Because sure. Spike Lee was on set. He was like, well, you need to say something when you find the thing. And, and Isaiah Washington was like, how about... She and Spike Lee, obviously, like everyone who hears Isaiah Washington said, she it completely lost it. It was like, yes, absolutely, that's wonderful. <laughs> and you have to do it twice. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and so I, he got he got Isaiah Washington to do the longest she of his life. There were people <laughs> to the point where you're like, is this still what is <laughs> what is happening? Am I losing my goddamn mind? I think that's how people felt in the th- like yeah. half of the audience was laughing, half was just like, what? <laughs> What the fuck? I think about fucking Wesley Snipes playing a 20-something-year-old with an eye patch and, like, yeah. doing a weird, again, like, in-living-color sketch comedy voice. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> know it was him at first, and I was just, oh, that's Wesley Snipes doing a weird voice. Um, and Nick Cannon's pretty good. Nick, yeah, Nick Cannon's pretty good. I think the lead actress is, is great. Yeah. No, very charming. But, um... I think I was just primed for do the right thing on the south oh, side. Dude, you can't ever expect do the right thing. I know. Ooh, do the right thing is a once in a lifetime movie. But you know what I'll say? Hmm. Chirac is also a once in a lifetime movie. There'll it's, never be is. another fucking it movie is. like Chirac. I want to watch it again knowing, you know, what it is. Yeah. As opposed to like walking in with a lot of hope and again, expectation. Oh, well, like, and like a lot of Spike Lee misses, if you don't find his humor funny, you're I not I find gonna, it sporadically funny. Yeah. That's, that's just, if I you don't, don't find, find it consistently it, funny. If you don't find it, like, really funny, it might be hard, a hard sit for you. Yeah. Yeah. All, but also, like, another audacious choice to Chirac, just that fucking lyric music video that opens. It's like, also, yeah, ter- I know. Terrible, terrible, terrible song. I thought so, too. It's like a rap song written by non-rappers. But in the theater, I was going, yeah, Spike Lee, yeah. Right, because it feels like, oh, shit, here it comes. Like, that opening, yeah. it, it feels as intense and vital as, not, not quite as intense and vital, but almost as intense and vital as Do the Right Thing's opening credits feel. What do you think about the casting of John Cusack? I, I mean, he's representing a real, a real That's guy, true. and he does a fine job. When he first shows up, I was like, "What is this?" And, I then, and then once I realized, like, "Oh, it's I forget the father, something, yeah, John, something." 
Right. I'm probably I, know, I, know I know what you're talking about. I don't know the guy's name. I follow him on Facebook, though. But at any rate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's. It's like, uh, he's fine. I mean, he gets the whole fucking. He gets, like, his sermon is. It's like, I guess this is where the facts are coming in. Like, it is. It's one of the laziest uh, didactic moments in Spike Lee's career, that sermon. But it's also, like, just goes to show the complicated relationship that he has with organized religion. No, uh, that's true. That's true. I find that I find that to be a consistently interesting theme in his work. Yeah, even if it's not prevalent, it's always there, I think. But I mean, he that's the thing, you know, to sum up, he always looks at all sides and he does have compassion mm-hmm. for every walk of life. And I think that shows through in most of his movies and I I I completely agree with Ebert that He's not an angry filmmaker, even if there's a lot of anger in his movies. Like, people just sort of associate, oh, Spike Lee, politically, politically, yeah. politically driven and angry all the time. I would, yeah, I wouldn't say, I mean, you talk, you see him in interviews, he, he mostly seems bored. <laughs> yeah, his commentary is he's very monotone, kind of like, yeah, this is uh, something I did here, and uh, yeah. I mean, not, not, not like deadpan, but still just... I don't know. He, yeah, he's as a, as a personality, he's kind of slowing down a little bit in recent yeah. years. I don't know what's going on with him, but I'm like uh, Woody Allen is continuing to make films, right? I'll, I'll see Woody Allen movies. I'll keep I'll keep watching them. I'm not. I don't think he'll ever make an interesting movie again. It will. He'll only ever make an interesting movie in the context of Woody Allen's career. Um, I think Spike Lee still has the potential to make very interesting movies. He's he's yeah. definitely just fallen into he's going to make Spike Lee movies for forever. Mm-hmm. I mean the next movie he's going to make is a biopic about a record label executive with Justin Timberlake and it's about the guy who basically huh. basically started disco or it's about that craze. Interesting. So that's going to be interesting to see. I don't know I don't know what the origins of that project is. I think that's something that Justin Timberlake has been trying to get made for a while and mm-hmm. Spike Lee's the guy who it landed on. So that'll be Cool to see. He, I mean, again, like he hasn't completely left Hollywood yet, but he never was a Hollywood filmmaker. He never, right. <laughs> you know, at no point was he trying to be like, "Come on, let me do a Batman." <laughs> <You know? laughs> Thank like, goodness. Yeah, like I mean, that's that's the sad thing about Spike Lee. Is Spike Lee is Spike Lee because he made himself Spike Lee in a time where the environment allowed him to make himself Spike Lee, right? I don't know if anyone's ever going to be able to do that again. You know, I think uh, Ava DuVernay is going to have a great career. She's going to keep making films. Mm-hmm. I think Justin Simeon uh, could probably keep making interesting movies. Uh, you know, uh, Malcolm Lee, Spike Lee's brother, who made Barbershop Three, is All carved right. out a niche for himself in these uh, sort of middle-brow uh, black comedies. Mm-hmm. And you know, but like, I don't, I don't know if they're ever going to let them there be another Spike Lee. I don't think so. I mean, I mean, and that's there. Again, there are people who defend Lee Daniels, but I just I can't get. I, I like. I just yeah. I mean, Precious that's, not that's a fair me. point, though. No, no, Lee Daniels, and I loved Precious when I saw it, but I have very pointedly not seen it since because I think maybe I'd hate it. Lee Daniels is, is actually an interesting one because he makes fucking weird movies too. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, but no. Lee Daniels has never been as relevant as Spike Lee. That's very true. Like, but. aesthetically or socially. Like, Lee Daniels' movies, you know, The Butler did well for him. The Butler was not on the tip of everyone's tongues. No. You know, Paperboy was a laughing stock at Cannes or Sundance or whatever. That's a movie that feels totally off. Really. Mm-hmm. Totally off. Ugh. Anyway, 
I love Spike Lee. Yeah. I really do. And the more I rewatch his movies, the more I find to appreciate... Um, you know, this world is so cloaked in, like, binary opposition and people in conflict. And I feel like he, he exposes kind of the truth and absurdity in, in the way people engage in conflict. And I feel like, I feel like Chirac is a noble effort. Yeah, it, I mean, also, I forgot to say that it also continues the theme. It is very sexist. In its view of like what the women's job is like, yeah, and also by the very nature of, I mean, it is a farce. It is like wildly farcical. But at the same but, time, in the media, Spike Lee is like, no peace, no pussy would work. Yeah, no, I know he is. Yeah, that's. I mean, he, but Spike Lee is like Quentin Tarantino. He says the thing he needs to get his movie sold. Okay, he shows up on the Late Show wearing the Chirac hat, like he's a fucking salesman. You got it. You got to separate the That's salesman true. from the filmmaker. Right. Uh, the filmmaker's right there on the screen, and the salesman's the guy who allows him, the filmmaker, to keep putting that stuff on the screen. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I, I mean, Tarantino. Tarantino will never stop making films unless he wants to stop making films because he doesn't need to sell his shit anymore, but he still does. Um. But uh. But yeah, like Chirac, it, by the very virtue of implying that world peace can happen via women withholding sex from men is like the like a very crazy heteronormative view of the world mm-hmm. and sexuality in which case there was like in one in one part in Chirac it's like there's a lesbian who's also doing it but like so it's the butch one and she's automatically like the one who's the man who's leaving or like right. it's 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 a fucked up movie in a lot of ways as well and also there are people there is a contingent of people who's like I don't want to fucking see Chirac because you are taking a tragedy of chicago and you are turning it into a farce and you're not taking it seriously and you're not doing your due diligence and i totally understand that if you are offended by that concept don't see chirac because that is what it is um as someone who's not offended as as such by that uh i am i'm just blown over by the audacity of it and i hope that's how i feel about a lot of his messes like i'm I'm just blown over by the audacity yeah and i hope he has he has another mess like that in him i think so i think he'll always be making movies I think he's going to be like a Billy Wilder, just keep making movies until his grave. Because I think he's got that energy and spirit left in him. Even if he's kind of slowing down, he's, I, can, I think he just wants to keep making movies because he's always going to have something to say. Yeah. What would be your top five? We're going five, Patrick. Okay, good. Cause I was gonna it's say, too hard my top three. Yeah, my top three doesn't, doesn't cut it for me. So my number one is Do the Right Thing. My number two is Malcolm X. My number three is 25th Hour. My number four is Crooklyn. And my number five, ooh, yeah, that's hard. Uh, ooh, I do like inside. I do like inside man, but I think, I think, mm, you know what? What's your number five? I'll I'll get you my number five when you're done. My number five is Passing Strange. Uh, I mean, again, maybe it was just the surprise factor. I wasn't expecting as much as I got out of that one. Mm-hmm. Um, number four for me is Crooklyn. Mm-hmm. Number three for me is Malcolm X. Number two is Do the Right Thing, and number one is 25th Hour. Although, really, the top three is like 1A, 1B, 1C. Yeah. <laughs> they're all masterpieces yeah, in my mind. They're all like greatest films ever made caliber. Yes. Um, I think my number five is Bamboozled. You're nuts. My number five is Bamboozled. You're nuts. You d- Deal with it. Screw you. Oh, yeah, I hate you. <laughs> Oh boy, do we have an episode coming up for you featuring Bill Ackerman 
in about two weeks or so, we are tackling the world of Sam Peckinpah. Oh, that's why he's watching all the Sam Peckinpah movies. That explains it. Yeah, that explains it. And now it's my turn to do the same. Patrick, you're over on Letterboxd, Mm -hmm. Twitter, Mm -hmm. Facebook, Mm -hmm. for now. Um, (laughs) And uh, That that, that changes daily. You're going to be working on a podcast of your own. I got a podcast you don't have to coming out in July, everybody. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's your podcast. I, uh, I, just, I was just like leaning back, and the way I like went forward, I was, I just, I just turned into like DMX. <laughs> DMX. Um, uh, I, I am doing a podcast starting in July. It's going to be a weekly podcast. It's going to be uh, commentary tracks for horror films, and I imagine probably down the line I'll get tired of that, and I'll, I'll start doing all sorts of episodes or whatever. But for that's the, what your twenties are for. What's that? <laughs> to do things and just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Get but, tired of them. Well, but at the moment, uh, it's going to be just horror films. Um, some of them I'll be on my own. Some of them I might have a guest. Some of them I might try to do something different or new or weird. Uh, it's gonna, it, I, have no, I have no high expectations for the listenership of this because it takes a lot of work for someone to sit down and sync up a, a commentary track with a movie. But eh, You never know. I don't know. That's right. You do have a following. <laughs> I don't. I, I, I'm not <laughs> even going there. But I think... Uh, I, th- I think it will be interesting. So, um, starting in the first, uh, you tell me when do all the podcasts on your network release? What day do they all release the same day or different days? Do they uh, have set days? days? Some people are like, whenever I get my episode to you, I'll, d- and then like two people. Cause I'm doing a set day thing. I'm doing, I'm doing it weekly and I'm going to do a season. So I'm mm. doing it from July to December. Or July through November. Friday's a good day just so people have the weekend, you know. Maybe uh, they're getting they're, they're going to get some takeout on a Friday night and they want to listen to a commentary track and watch a horror movie. That's probably, I'd say Friday yeah, night's a I good night. Thursday or Friday. So maybe every yeah, Friday good. Yeah. it'll be doing. But anyway, it'll be a season. It'll be a, a seasonal thing so I don't lose my fucking mind. So I'm going to be doing it from July through November and then I'll be taking it off until next July. So can't wait for that. And we'll we'll do some commentary tracks very soon here. It's something I've been putting off, and we just it's it's been hard. Yeah, we'll but we'll get, I'll, I'll send yeah. you my schedule. We'll figure it out. Boom! Thank you, Patrick, for being back on Directors Club to talk about one of our favorite directors. Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, I, part of me, um, I some of these I haven't seen some of these movies in a while, and part of me was like, oh no, I'm going to go back and realize that Spike Lee isn't everything I thought he was, and I I just doubled down. I love Spike Lee more than ever. Yeah, that's how I feel about Scorsese and Spike Lee. So. Um, yeah, I, it was just like, okay, for my birthday month, I want to spoil myself. Yeah. And I did it in that voice. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Stay tuned to the next episode with Bill Ackerman when we talk about Sam Peckinpah. Until next time, visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Jim. Goodbye. Bye. Recognize you. Don't you pay them folks no never mind. You just keep right on doing what you doing. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'll pray for you, sir. Oh, thank you. Jesus will protect you. 
I wasn't expecting the X-Men movie to be great, but I wasn't also expecting it to hear how horrible it is. Yeah. So I'm kind of like, oh, I have to sit through that now? Well, I've sat through the other two. I might as well complete the R- trilogy. I've, of- had, I've had multiple people come in and be like, I want to see the new X-Men movie. What do I have to see? And I'm like... Guess what? They fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) There's fucking seven movies you have to see.